Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday on this um, no longer wintry day in the upper Midwest. I have so much to talk to you about and great guests. I may take things a little out of order today because um, uh, one of the guests may come on early and, and we'll see about that. So if I flip the order of things, I flip the order of things. It will be worth it. In the meantime, let's talk about this. You know, uh, once again, the U.S. economy uh, has sort of shocked the media accustomed as they are to bringing us bad news. Not only uh, did businesses add 335,000 new jobs in January, but the Labor Department, you know, finished and revised its report on jobs numbers for all of 2023, a stunning 3.1 million new jobs in a year. <laughs> and, and, and just yesterday, the University of Michigan's, you know, uh, respected, anticipated index of consumer sentiment came out, and it showed the highest level of confidence in the economy since 2021. Look, uh, the management of questions as diverse and complicated as, let's just go through a list, right? Global supply chain bottlenecks, tax policy, trade policy, infrastructure spending, federal science and health research priorities, uh, antitrust and fair labor actions, our approach to public health, uh, are the legal frameworks we maintain to support business growth. All of these things shape our economy. And it is incontrovertible that we are doing well and that the leadership of Joe Biden has a lot to do with that. The, you know what? The only response from the other side, candidate Trump's response to the rising stock market is here's one of my favorite words, risible. It is so risible, his claim, that all of the gains are due to the expectation that he will return to the White House. Okay, he's a madman. In the meantime, really first-rate work being done. All right, let's, um, uh, uh, let's consider the other big news. Once again... U.S. B-1 bombers are flying missions over Iraq and Syria. The intent, uh, we've been told, of this terrifying force projection is to raise the cost of attacking U.S. troops in the region um, and to lower tensions by degrading the military capabilities of those who would escalate the current Gaza conflict into a larger regional conflagration. This, uh, this action takes place in the context of some of the most intense and challenging diplomatic work in memory. Look, what's happening, and I, you know, I, I know I wade into this at my peril, but I think we have to talk about it. What's happening in Gaza is, oh, it's many things and different things to different people. But one thing I think everyone can agree on is it is a screaming reminder of the terrible cost of war. 
the, the anguish, um, not just in Gaza, but around the world of watching the war in Gaza, um, has, has driven many people to the streets to protest. It certainly increased the pressure on the Biden administration to fight for a short-term solution. The domestic politics of this foreign conflict are difficult. But so far, Biden has, um, he's kept his eye on the horizon and is working to find not just an end, an early end to this terrible war, but to create a post-conflict reality that gives Palestinians the sovereignty and dignity they have for too long been denied and gives to Israel the regional security it has never had. And as always, bad actors in the region, they are willing to go to great lengths to preserve the struggles that give them the room to maneuver for their own ends. Hence the B1s this week. And look, just like I said a few minutes ago, as the management of our economy is intensely complicated, so is the path through this terrible crisis in the Middle East. And once again, there is no Republican alternative to Biden's leadership. Seriously, all they have to offer us on what's going on in the Middle East is to rail against university presidents who they claim have not gone far enough to ban speech on their campuses, to tweets that the U.S. military response is too slow and too weak, to banging the drum for an actual invasion of Iran. Seriously? They got nothing. Look, the incredible performance on very difficult conditions on both the economy and this thoughtful, disciplined approach to uh, uh, the really grave threats to peace and stability around the world, they are the hallmark of American leadership. Joe Biden does not get the credit he has earned for this work. Meanwhile, those guys on the other side, I mean, they're focused on bathrooms and bedrooms and bookshelves. That's just Maddening. Maddening. Okay. Um, I uh, guess I'm going to talk to you about something else right now, and that is, um, since I brought it up, the topic of the Republicans, right? Their focus not on the real problems of our economy or what's going on in the world. They used to be the party of personal freedom. Right now, they're just like an old scold. Instead of seeing opportunity, they shrink from challenges. Instead of urging us to do great things, they tell us we can't. We can't. You can't. You can't. And if it weren't so dangerous, it would just be annoying and boring. I- I'm going to start calling them Republicans, right? Because they scold us and they say, "Hey, you can't have that drag show in this town," or they pour over our options and carefully take away what they don't like. Like, um, no, no, they tell us, you can't take that sociology course. No, 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 you can't talk about the causes of the Civil War. How dare you? They're shocked at our behavior. And they they demand we we even 
you know, stop talking about climate change. And no, they tell us, you absolutely can't walk on a street unless you're surrounded by guns. They think it's, it's just hard even to say this stuff in light of the global crises and the economic miracle that we're having here. But I got to say it anyway. They think it's okay for Donald Trump to read stolen national security documents in his bathroom in Mar-a-Lago, but that high schoolers shouldn't be able to read novels by Toni Morrison in their own libraries. Are you kidding me? The grand old party draws its disapproving line and we're ordered not to cross it. This is who they are. Mr. Mr. Trump raped the woman in a clothing store changing room. But his, I mean, yuck. But his party says women who get pregnant by rape can't terminate that pregnancy. They say her sister can't drive her to a bordering, bordering state. They say her doctor can't take care of her if there are complications and she starts to bleed out in the hospital. This is who they are. And this is who they want us to be. Instead of people who build who create 300,000, 360,000 jobs a month instead of people who are actively working to make the world safer. And look, um, these Republicans, they don't just tell us what we can't do. They try and tell us what we can't think. It's, it's you know, not just the weird stuff like telling us not to like Taylor Swift because her boyfriend got vaccinated. It's also, you know, we're not allowed to think our institutions can be trusted. The courts? Well, Mr. Trump has found, you know, as we say, libel for rape and defamation and for business fraud. And they say, well, you can't trust that. Elections. It doesn't matter that they lost scores of cases. They told us we can't trust the vote count. And now, and now, they say we can't continue to believe in Mr. Lincoln, the party's founder, Mr. Lincoln's idea that that and the one that that led to the creation of GOP, that we are one nation indivisible. Right? Because the Supreme Court says Texas is part of the union and has to follow the laws passed by Congress and signed by the president. And Texas says, nope, not going to do that. And the Republican governors around the country agree. Nope, you you. People out there in the country, you cannot think that we are a union anymore. This is what the Republicans are trying to do to us. And look, to be fair, I want to be fair. But to be fair, they don't just tell us what not to do. After all, they can't do anything either, at least not their jobs. They can't pass laws to fix the border. Never mind that it's their number one issue. It's so important to them that they can't think about anything else like defending Europe from Russian aggression or what they think about what's going on in the Middle East. Not going to happen. So uh, it won't pass laws on border security. Okay, they won't even pass a tax cut bill. Can you imagine that? The Republicans won't pass a tax cut bill because they think, um, A, it lifts children out of poverty, the one that they negotiated. But they also say, you know, it makes the government look good. Oh, my God. They won't do something that makes the government look good. Wait, what? Isn't doing good the job that they got elected to do? Republicans. 
They tell us we can't do anything and they really can't do anything. But look, it isn't just, I mean, it's worse. And I'm just going to keep going for a minute. Republic can'ts. They, they, they don't just tell us we can't do things that Americans are supposed to do. or We can't have the freedoms Americans are supposed to have. We can't trust the institutions we spent 200 years building. They don't tell us, um, uh, uh, they don't do the jobs themselves. But here's the worst part. They tell us you can't trust your own good sense. You can't trust your own good sense. They demand we believe their lies about elections, about January 6th, about George Floyd, about ivermectin, about space lasers, about the path of hurricanes. Look, um, I want to hear from you. Call in uh, 773-763-9278 because, look, it's time to send these Republicans packing and show Americans um, that we are a can-do people. Uh, We'll take a quick break, but I'll take your calls when we come back. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. All right, quickly, for those of you who called in, um, I apologize. I'm not going to take your calls right now because during the break, um, we uh, got connected with my first guest, and I just really want to give him this time now. We'll get to you later. Let me just tell you about Barton Gelman. He um, is a Rhodes Scholar, a a multiple Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He spent two decades at the Washington Post, often in, you know, really difficult roles as a correspondent covering the military, the law, foreign policy. He's written books like about Dick Cheney's vice presidency, about Edward Snowden and American surveillance. He lectures at Princeton where he went to school. He writes for the Atlantic. Back in 2020, I'm, this is just pretty impressive stuff. You know, he wrote the cover story warning everybody that Donald Trump was going to act to remain in office after a loss. He raised his hand. I don't think we paid enough attention. And la- last week, he, he did something uh, pretty amazing. He, he kind of he left the journalism role, and joined the Brennan Center to help respond to threats of abuse of power and the assaults on our democratic institutions that are already underway to overturn the 2024 election. Uh, uh, Barton, thank you for joining me. It's really an honor to have you here. It's my pleasure. I'm a, a, a big fan of the Brennan Center, and Michael Waldman has been on this show I'm also a big fan of your writing in The Atlantic, um, writing that I think was, you know, important and influential. So I got to ask, why did you decide to move and why now? Well, you know, I'm a big believer in the power of journalism to shape conversations, to bring important information to light and all those things. But I spent several years writing about existential threats to our democracy and the rule of law. And I just started to feel like I ought to get off the sidelines. I started to feel like this is a nation shaping fight. And I wanted to be more directly involved than I could be as a journalist. Yeah, I am deeply appreciative of that. Um, Welcome to the advocacy side. Uh, But you know what, we you're going to find quickly, we advocates rely on that great journalism. So uh, you got both. And I'm, I'd love to hear more about what you're doing. I mean, the Brennan Center crafts policies and advocates for them in Congress and through the courts. Um, I, I, I can understand why they want your guidance about what they need to advocate for in the coming months. 
Well, uh, my role is a bit cross-cutting at the center. Uh, I will be advising the leadership uh, on strategy and planning across the range of Brennan Center activities that have to do with voting, democracy, uh, judiciary, uh, law and national security, um, justice programs. But my my uh, my big focus is going to be on protecting democracy against attempts to subvert it in the 2024 election and attempts to subvert it in 2025 if an authoritarian comes to power and is sworn in on January 20th. And scenario planning for that and coming up with policies and programs and communications plans and ideas for fighting back against authoritarianism is my main focus right now. Um, yeah, the announcement of your move was interesting. You know, it talked about pre and post election uh, fighting autocratic initiatives. And I assume that that's important because you actually anticipate these what are what you call autocratic initiatives. What are you thinking we're likely to see? from the autocratic movement in America in advance, excuse me, in advance of the election and in its aftermath? Well, there have been ongoing efforts to subvert election results uh, that uh, began in earnest uh, after the 2020 election in the immediate aftermath uh, in which Donald Trump and his many allies tried to overturn democracy, tried to overturn the actual result of a presidential election and came reasonably close to doing so. Uh, they have continued in fairly sophisticated ways uh, to look for levers they can pull that help them throw out election votes, uh, election results, or help them uh, disqualify voters or uh, discourage voters. Uh, that yeah. help them in the, that help them at the point of certification of votes. Uh, they are yeah. coming up with legal legal theories and recruiting people uh, who would decline to certify a result that they didn't like. Uh, and the Brennan Center is very much in the thick of making sure those things don't happen. Okay, naive me. Um, you know, I thought that enacting the changes to the Electoral Count Act and the Supreme Court ruling in Moore versus Harper last spring, which I thought put an end to the crazy independent state legislature doctrine, were meant to make us in better shape now than we were in 2020. But you seem concerned that we're actually maybe in more jeopardy. Well, we're in different jeopardy. Uh, I, I think uh, Moore versus Harper, uh, the result that rejected the idea of an independent state legislature that is not beholden to state constitutions uh, or state laws. I, I mean, the theory there was, was that that the state legislature uh, can decide who the state's nominee is for president, uh, yep. even if its voters vote against that person. So that yep. was nuts, and the Supreme Court walked away from it. Uh, but it, uh, there's a lot of nuances in law that may not be quite dead. The Electoral Count Act changes were important at a big advance, uh, and they make it much harder uh, for Congress to mess around with the results of the Electoral College when the time comes for mm -hmm. the next 
certification on January 6th of 2025. But there are a lot of places for mischief that are still left in the long process that goes from casting of votes to the final certification of the results by Congress. Uh, And uh, there are very smart people on the other side who are looking for all the loopholes. Yeah, well, that brings me to to where those places are. So much of the Brennan Center's work is focused at the national level, but so much of the damage and so much of the risk is being done at the state level. And I worry um, what what I there there are parts of our Constitution I view as like the break glass in case of emergency parts of the Constitution, and I'm worried that we don't have the courage to use them. I mean, for example, we're already. Uh, uh, undies in a bunch about the 14th Amendment's potential uh, restriction of a candidate who's an insurrectionist, right? We, it's written there, but we aren't sure that it's written there. Um, there another, there's another one that says, you know, every state must have a Republican form of government. Um, but some states are so gerrymandered that hardly, you know, the, uh, there are folks who look at democracy around the world and say, yeah, you know what? It, like, Ohio's less democratic than a bunch of countries. So how do we think about this? Are we going to be able from the work you guys do in the courts and nationally to take on the fight in the States? So I want to uh, give a shout out to some amazing work that's being done by my colleagues at the Brennan Center already on the state and local level. Uh, The Brennan Center uh, convenes election officials from all over the country, from just about every state, uh, together with law enforcement officials from those states, and goes through scenarios of things, bad things that could happen on election day and and immediately thereafter, and uh, makes resources available so the election officials know what their powers are, what the laws are, uh, and who they can call if they need help. Uh, And the Brennan Center also has a brand new report right now on threats, harassment, and intimidation against state officials uh, and election officials and legislators uh, and and so on. And shows how those are 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 damaging democratic institutions and makes recommendations for what to do about them. So we're not only working on the national level, we are working on the state and local level as well. Oh, thank goodness. That's great. Really great. I, I want to, I guess, zoom out a different way and ask you about this. The challenge to, it's on my mind, I don't know if I'm correct or not, but I think the challenge posed by Governor Abbott and Eagle Pass, Texas, you know, it's ostensibly about immigration, but I, I think it's just part of a larger effort to radicalize Americans on the right and weaken their allegiance to both the union and the rule of law. And A, I want to ask you if you think that's fair. And B, if I'm right, doesn't that play into a strategy to undermine the upcoming election? Well, it is actually uh, a a grave thing that's happening in Texas right now. Um, And it's not just about whether there's going to be razor wires stretched out in the middle of the river uh, to catch uh, would-be immigrants, uh, which have already killed people. Uh, The Supreme Court ruled 
that Abbott does not have the power to guard the national border, does not have the power to prevent national forces, uh, uh, forces deployed by Biden from the executive branch uh, to go in and tear down that razor wire. Uh, and he is defying uh, that ruling. Uh, and he is offering forward a, uh, a constitutional theory that was uh, rejected uh, from, you know, from the days of, of states' rights overriding federal rights, and that, that essentially is a civil war doctrine. And I, I wouldn't say lightly uh, that we're risking another civil war, but Abbott is playing with fire. He is playing with the possibility that he, uh, forces under his command could get into uh, a, a physical and potentially bloody fight with federal forces attempting to enforce federal law and a ruling of the Supreme Court. Uh, and that is not something that any governor ought to be doing. Yeah. And it, and, and at the same time, governors from around the country, Republican governors from around the country are cheering him on, offering him their own, uh, troops. And, um, this boy, it is redolent with the 1860s, early 1860s, and I, I just, I, even if we don't, and I don't think we will. I hope, pray we won't get into. There won't be a miscalculation that leads to shooting between any of these armies. But even if we don't get there, the effect on the population is a radicalization, um, and one that doesn't radicalize people in support of union and rule of law. I mean, it, it's a it's a direct attack on the legitimacy of the law in the courts. In this country, when the courts make a ruling, uh, the the presumption is, the norm is that you obey the ruling. Uh, the fact is, the Supreme Court doesn't have its own troops, and if a governor in command of the state national guard and state law enforcement forces uh, is simply going to say, uh, "You're not the boss of me," to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, we've got a, a big problem. It is distressing that so many Republican governors are going along with this, you know, as a, as a basically it's tribal politics. It's uh, this is this immigration confrontation is, they think, a good thing for Republican politics. Uh, and uh, I hope they rethink the implications of turning your nose up against the law. Yeah, I mean, on the other side, you know, I live in Chicago, and the Supreme Court, in in a couple of cases, made all of our gun legislation unconstitutional. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons why we would have said, you know, forget it. We're just going to keep those laws in place because, you know, a big city can be a dangerous place. But we didn't do that. We said the law is the law. I mean, and Al Gore lost a presidential uh, uh, he won the vote. He lost his seat in the White House because of the Supreme Court. And like Americans didn't decide to storm the Capitol and tear everything down, right? I mean, no, he conceded. He he did what every losing presidential candidate has done for more than a century. He said, "Congratulations to my opponent. It was a hard fought race. He won. He's our president, and I concede the election. That's what you're supposed to do." Yeah, and that's what uh, all of us supporting him expected him to do when that became the law of the land after the Supreme Court decision, even those of us who disagreed with that decision. 
And, and, and I guess I'm worried that right now chunks of America define legitimacy as, as whatever Mr. Trump wants, whatever, whatever our side is saying is legitimate and everything else isn't. It's a winner-take-all attitude, and I don't understand what it means. I guess I have to ask you, what does it mean to win on our side, on the side of law and order and the continuing democracy? If the other crowd says, we will never concede, we will only undermine until we win. How do you, how do you, I mean, I know we could win the next election, right? But how do we put an end to this radicalization that under, so undermines the institutions that we need to be a country? Well, I believe these are significant threats uh, to our democracy uh, that we have to take them seriously. But I am an optimist that the American people are not going to stand for leaders who say the law doesn't apply to me. Uh, the American people are not going to stand for false claims of of uh, fake elections or uh, cooked elections or, uh, or, 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 or rigged court cases. I believe that when the courts speak, the majority of the American people are going to stand behind them. And I think that Friends of Democracy, uh, like the Brennan Center and many, many others, are just going to have to fight that fight and awaken the civic instincts of the American people to support their institutions. Yeah. Well, I worry with radical gerrymandering in the states, and Democrats have been guilty of that in the past, too, but the moment this gerrymander favors um, uh, the MAGA world, um, I, I worry that majorities aren't enough. I mean, majorities haven't been enough in states like Wisconsin or, or, or Ohio to change their policies. So um, they have to be super majorities. So we got to wake a lot more people. Yeah, I mean, the calculations that I've seen, and this is not my business, uh, electoral politics, we're a nonpartisan center at, at Brennan. But That's what I've read is that, uh, that a Democrat has to win the presidency by about 3% of the popular vote. Uh, in order to win the Electoral College, that winning by 1% or 2% of the popular vote will not, uh, by most projections, get you an Electoral College win. Mm -hmm. So the Democrats okay. have, have a you know, have a three-point or a three-and-a-half-point deficit just going into the race, and that's the task uh, for Joe Biden in the next election. Are there, I guess I should ask this, since, since you are in the nonpartisan world, are there examples um, of any significance where uh, where Democrats are undermining democratic norms and values and those institutions, or are all of the examples we cite coming from the right at the moment? Well, I, I mean, gerrymandering is something that Democrats engage in. Also, I, I think in fairness, not as uh, much or as systematically as Republicans and Democrats are. Uh, the party uh, that has proposed national legislation that would stop gerrymandering. But given the rules as they are, I mean, the Democratic Party of New York, for example, where I live, uh, engaged in plenty of gerrymandering uh, to its own advantage uh, in allocating state districts here. Uh, and I think anybody with power uh, 
uh, is going to be tempted to use and abuse that power unless there yeah. are rules and norms that stop it. And that's why, uh, you know, I personally, not speaking for the Brennan Center, would favor a constitutional amendment that makes clear that there is unequivocally a right to vote and have your vote counted equally uh, because the Supreme Court uh, does not think there is one uh, inherent in the Constitution, and that's why its voting right cases and gerrymandering cases uh, have achieved such disappointing results. Um, let me ask you about constitutional amendments. I, there are a pile of them I would like, but a really smart person um, uh, told me, um, it was actually Russ Feingold, uh, who now runs the American Constitution Society, said, look, if I could pick one amendment of the Constitution, it would be Article 5 on how the Constitution gets amended. Because as it is today, none of the ones you want can possibly ever happen. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. The, the, the framers wanted the Constitution to be hard to amend. I mean, that's the idea of a basic law. Uh, it, and it it's not something you want a simple majority to be able to do because uh, one of the whole purposes of the Constitution is to protect minority rights against the majority tyranny. Uh, but they also did contemplate amendments, and there were, there were the, the vital first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights, uh, happened in the right. founding era. Yeah, uh, the founders and, are and, responsible for more than ha almost half of all of the amendments. <laughs> right. I don't. I don't think that. I, I don't think that they anticipated that political gridlock would make it as hard as it is now to amend the constitutions. Yeah. 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 And um, you guys are um, amongst the things that you're thinking about. Um, are there uh, is, are constitutional amendments part of what you're thinking about? for uh, the democracy protection work in the next coming years? Uh, to be honest, it is so hard to contemplate getting an amendment through, and it takes so many years uh, okay. that that is not to be, you know, on our okay. top three uh, list of, of, of uh, solutions because you just can't get there yep. from here, not easily. I mean, that's a long-term campaign that is worth fighting, but is not going to solve the problem of despotic action if Trump wins the presidency and takes office again in January 20th of 2025. I had a failure of imagination when I, when I read about um, post-election work that you were doing. In my head, of course, I thought you were talking about if Joe Biden wins and the, and the MAGA world doesn't accept that victory. What, what are the steps that need to be taken? It didn't, I, I, I failed to read that and contemplate what you're actually worried about, which is Donald Trump returns to office, maybe having had the Supreme Court or somebody else say he actually is immune from any consequences of what he does um, and what the world would look like. And can you just take a couple minutes and talk to us about how you defend against that? Well, that is the heart of what I am just starting to work on. I have been at the Brennan Center for a grand total of two weeks, and I am uh, talking to my colleagues, and I am surveying um, 
allied organizations in the democracy space to see what they're doing. Uh, and I'm beginning to think about what we could do that would be most effective to uh, strengthen the guardrails of democracy and rule of law in 2025 uh, if they are needed. Uh, and uh, they're always needed, no matter who's president, but they will be very strongly tested if Trump gets back in. And I'm not a political pundit, but you know, I can read the polls, and the polls seem to be, you know, close enough to 50-50 that you have to take seriously the possibility that Trump will legitimately win the election uh, in, uh, in November. And in that case, we're going to have to know what he might do, uh, and he's telling us a lot of that, uh, and, and what might be done about it. I mean, we know that he wants to politicize the civil service. He wants to return a spoiled system. He wants to be out of fire. 50,000 civil servants uh, who are nonpartisan uh, and put in his political allies into those jobs. Uh, He wants to investigate and prosecute his political enemies. He's very open about that. Uh, He and uh, the people planning for his administration, uh, it's something called Project 2025, uh, are talking about um, erasing the independence of of independent uh, administrative agencies like the Federal Election Commission, the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, There are a lot of uh, there are dozens of them that, that, that are that, that are quasi independent that are not beholden to the president uh, by charter and by tradition, uh, and he wants them all to work directly for him so that he can say, uh, "No, these abort- abortion medications are." Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, that's a that's the beginning of a short list, uh, and there's going to be a long list of things that he might do that challenge existing norms and traditions and, and, and directly challenge the rule of law. Uh, and uh, some of those things are inherent presidential powers and will be hard to combat, uh, but we're going to be looking for every tool available. I, there's some irony in your telling me a couple minutes ago that you have confidence the American people are going to reject fake court rulings, fake uh, 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 you know, charges of election fraud, and the people who spout them, and yet have to take seriously the possibility that Mr. Trump, who is the, after all, poster boy for this stuff, could actually get elected. But I, I, I'm willing to say it's completely imprudent not to plan for it. Well, that's... What it seems to us, it seems to us that if you care about these issues, you have to plan for all possibilities. I also think the planning process will turn up scenarios, will turn up information uh, and model results uh, that may influence voters in deciding whether they want this kind of president. Yep, well, that um, is much. I, I'm looking at the clock, and I understand you have about a minute left. So. Would you tell people how they find your work going forward? Um, as I just uh, well, uh, the Brennan Center is at BrennanCenter.org, spelled like the former great uh, Supreme Court justice. Uh, and uh, you can find me and ways to contact me at BartonGelman.com. And uh, I encourage you to read the reports of my uh Many talented colleagues uh, doing a lot of good work on democracy protection right now. Well, 
Um, thank you so much for your time and uh, for your work over many years as a terrific journalist and now in your new role um, as an advocate for democracy. Just, I think the country is very fortunate that you are well, doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for all your kind words and for uh, letting me speak to your listeners. Yeah, we'll do it again as you have unveiled more. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, All right, everybody. I promised I would take your calls um, uh, almost a half hour ago, and I want to take them for a few minutes now if you're, if you're up for it. I think uh, Barton Gelman is a, a true national treasure. And, um, oh, my gosh, the work is so important. But there are also those other topics I talked to you about at the beginning, our fabulous economy, the work that has pushed us forward there, and um, the uh, disciplined, thoughtful, long view about foreign policy. So um, I'm interested in your thoughts about all that. And, of course, I'll take calls again at the end of the show, but I have a little bit of time now. Jim, what do you think? Hi, Edwin. I, I, there's three uh, machinations for the Republican Party. It was the know-nothings. No, it was the Whigs, then the know-nothings, who hated the Irish, by the way. They had some really terrible hatred for the Irish. And then the Republican Party. But now they got to get a new name, and I think it should be We Refuse to Lose. We, we Refuse to Lose. If we lose the election, we'll put our thumb in our mouth and turn our face blue. Until uh, you give us to let us let us uh, brew over you. I mean, that's how but crazy this is, guy. Yeah, go I, ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Think about it, Jim. But think about the implications of that. If you have people who losing in a democracy, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. That's the way it goes. But if you refuse to lose, you don't live in a democracy anymore. You live in a one-party state. Like the, like the CCP refuses to lose in China and will do anything to make sure there's nothing that challenges it. Same thing with Putin and Russia. Same thing throughout history with despots. There is no challenge, right? And, that, and, and the challenge is what keeps governments responsive to people. So they don't want to live in that. How do we deal with that? I, Edwin, you know, let's face it, I'm a Democrat all my life. I've lost many elections. I voted for, I started with McGovern, who got murdered in that election, but I voted for him anyway, and Carter, and I had losses, and so on and so forth. But, I mean, I wasn't about to storm anybody or strangle anybody over it. I mean, this is America. My point is, the Republican Party is getting so insane about not, uh, having uh, you know anything for our elections, having any regards for our electoral yeah, process, yeah. that they're they're ruining the whole system, and they got to be they got to come to their they got to come to their senses and realize that they're, they'll win eventually, or whatever the case may be, if they got the right policy. But we have to have the electoral process of the United States of America. I can't imagine I, there goes our democracy, right? I'm not asking you. I'm not. I'm not asking about that. This crowd, this is who they are. They've told us this is who they are. I'm asking you about us. What do we do? I mean, we beat them at the polls. No question, we beat them at the polls. But like in the Civil War, Lincoln said, because he knew these people, he said, you don't get to come back and be part of Congress until we've changed the Constitution. So you cannot go backwards and like reimpose slavery. Not going to happen. 
Like, what do we have to do to put in I think the malignancy is Trump. There's no question about it. I don't think that any Republican beside the malignancy of Trump would go to this extreme where you would have a three-star general in Russian interference and go to the links to to be elected. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's a malignancy. He's a malignancy. Let's face it. There's no question. I hope hope you're right, but I I look at the Leonard Leos of the world who are hiding in the shadows, and I worry that it it isn't going to be enough just to beat Trump. But thank you, Jim. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. You bet. Steve, what do you think? Uh, yes, I'd like to make a couple of points, and I, I would respectfully uh, disagree slightly with uh, Jim in that uh, I don't think that Donald Trump is the full embodiment of magism. I think it transcends him. I think it will go on long after he's gone. He he was a, able to sort of coalesce these people behind the kind of... Uh, uh, okay. You know, Steve, when you call in and you're driving, sometimes stuff happens. Um, uh Okay, I didn't just. What? Oh, he's back? You're back. Hello? Yeah. Yeah, so yes, uh, uh, like I said, I I don't think that uh, Trump fully embodies MAGAism. I think it will transcend his existence in terms of the Republican Party. But uh, it's also worth noting that as frightening as he is, polls show that Nikki Haley actually beats Joe Biden by three and four times the margin that Donald Trump can in the most optimistic of polls for him. So, uh, you know, what's what's scarier, running against Donald Trump, who I think we can defeat soundly. There's nothing about him in the last several years, you know, given the losses in 18. There's something about your connection that is just no good, but I will finish that thought for you. Um, Should Democrats be more eager to run against Donald Trump because he's easier to beat, even though he is the biggest threat in the world, um, than to run against Nikki Haley, who might be a more popular candidate, um, uh, but seems, and and certainly a right-wing candidate, but seems to have a little bit more respect for where the the boundaries are. Um, Yeah, I'm interested in what you guys think about that. That's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good question. All right, so... um, I want, to, I want to give you just a heads up to the rest of the day and take a personal moment. The, heads, the, the rest of the show is going to be um, awesome. I mean, I thought the conversation with Barton Gelman was pretty good, but I caught up with Greg Sargent yesterday, and we're going to, we're going to hear from him um, in a little bit, uh, uh, and I'll tell you about him when we come back. That's great. Jill Lawrence, who you know, has been looking at South Carolina and what's going on there. We're going to catch up with her, and David Pepper is going to make sure we don't forget about what's going on in the States to round it up. Um, I, I wanted to take a personal note and just, uh, um, I, I, today's my birthday and I am, um, I, I was treated by my family and by uh, one of my kids to something just spectacular this week. One of my, uh, I, I have three fabulous adult children, one of whom is a, actor, singer, performer, and the two of us did a cabaret at a piano bar in Chicago this week. And that was, I cannot tell you how much fun that was. So I, I, I want to take, and the reason why I'm telling you this here on this political show is I urge all of you, all of you, this is going to be a long, grueling year, a year um, of of. Uh, exhilaration, but also a year of terrible pain as we 
uh, look at what's going on in the world and look at what we have to do to save our democracy here and not just our democracy, but rights like uh, uh, reproductive freedom or in some states like to be able to go to a library. You know, we have a lot of work to do. It's so helpful to find something else that you love, to take a little bit of time off, to step away from the battlefield for a moment, to to uh, gain some perspective and to charge your batteries again. So I was afforded that by my family this, this past week. And, you know, oddly enough, the audience seemed to love it. Who knows? We may do it again sometime. But I'm really... Um, I'm really... Uh, uh, enthused about what we can do if we take a little bit of time off. I seem to have a technical difficulty, so we're going to go to a break because um, I understand you're having trouble hearing me, and I'm going to work on my microphone. Um, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. Look at that. We got your news in a little early. Get you ahead of the curve. Um, so Greg Sargent, he recently left a long and storied run at the Washington Post, and he's now part of the team at the New Republic. Back in 2018, he wrote a book, treated us to a book, Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. Let's get started. So, so. Anyway, he, 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 uh, he and I quite caught up yesterday, but I want to just say this. Um, you know, he's like been one of the country's most trusted and influential columnists. And if the word columnist conjures up the image of someone who, who takes a whole week to write a column, you're showing your age because he's been writing um, at, uh, at, like posts every day. And he now has uh, the Daily Blast, which is a podcast about politics. And it's just an enormously helpful for those of us trying to make sense of this fraught period. Uh, he and I got caught up yesterday, and I want you to hear that conversation now. Let's get started. So, so just to begin, congratulations on landing at the New Republic. It is, a, a, I think, a great place to continue the good work you've been doing. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, some of your recent writing is scarier than Stephen King's, I think. You, you, you warned us that, you know, that Trump's argument on presidential immunity, as well as the GOP refusal to pass tough immigration laws, even though it's their top priority, they can sure they can be seen as, you know, an effort to stay out of jail and to prevent a Biden win. But you've told us they should also can and should be seen as laying the groundwork for an unimaginably lawless and cruel presidency if Trump wins. Talk about that. Yeah, you, you actually, it's, it's interesting that you see a through line there because I agree with you. On the immunity thing, I think what is really going on is Trump is in effect promising uh, a hyper-lawless presidency totally unshackled from the rule of law. I mean, he's directly and explicitly saying a president should not be subject to prosecution once he leaves office, no matter what he does. He's calling for absolute immunity for presidents. Now, you may not remember this because it was a few years ago and our memories are short, but Trump actually feared prosecution during his first term. That's why he uh, tried to obstruct the Mueller probe. It's not as if he's invincible and above the law, um, but he wants to be. 
And so what I take from all this is that he's essentially telling his supporters, I will have a, a presidency that's unshackled from the law. And then when you combine that with all the threats he's making, again, explicitly, such as prosecuting his political opponents, persecuting, quote unquote, vermin Democrats on a mask scale, then you really have to ask yourself, what would he do if unshackled from the law along those lines? He could break all kinds of laws to carry out his campaign of what he calls revenge, but it isn't even revenge, since he's not actually being wronged. He's got due process, as he is prosecuted right now. Um, but there is a connection to immigration here in that he and Stephen Miller are also advertising extraordinarily draconian plans for the immigrant population here and those trying to seek refuge here. And again, if he's totally unshackled from the law, what would he do on immigration? He's openly fantasized about things like shooting people at the border. A president who's immune from prosecution, who fantasizes along those lines, I, I don't think we want that. They've, they've talked about shooting people at the border. They've talked about invading Mexico to go after cartels. They've talked about rounding up tens of millions of people and putting them in concentration camps. And I suppose, you know, the idea for them is, oh, they're just going to round up their so-called illegal immigrants, but they'll also throw in their political enemies and everybody else. This is a this is a vision that the world saw in the 1930s in a very different time and place that that is antithetical to everything we stand for. And yet they're saying it out loud. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and by the way, I think there's a reason they're saying it out loud, which which is also alarming in another sense, right? Look, it's obviously true that Biden has had a very tough time on immigration. He's dealing with unprecedented levels of, of migration in the Americas right now. And it is creating serious logistical problems at the border. And as a result, his approval rating is in the toilet on the issue. I think what Trump and Stephen Miller perceive here as an opportunity to openly advertise something like real white nationalist policies, a genuine white nationalist agenda, in the hopes that swing voters who are alienated by the imagery of the disorder at the border that they're seeing will take that on as the only solution that can actually work. I do think that they're, I don't know how conscious of this Trump is, but I think Stephen Miller's quite conscious of it. I think there's a reason he keeps going out there and saying things like the mass deportations will begin on day one. He wants swing voters to come around to the idea that that's the only solution. Wow. Well, it, it's a kind of solution, just not an American one by, you know, in any fashion. Um, yeah. No, I'm so true. glad. That it's, um, it, it's really there's a, a highly authoritarian quality to it all. Yes. And cruel in a in a way that we hope we have better angels than that. Um Boy, that's awful. I mean, I'm so glad that you're paying attention to Stephen Miller, right? He's an important part of this story, an important part of Trump's brain. And um, uh, we can't just let him hide, you know, or just speak to his to his audience and have the rest of us not know about it. 
yes. In fact, there's an episode that really underscores this that is really forgotten from the first Trump presidency. But you may recall that Democrats offered Trump something like $25 billion for his wall in exchange for legalizing the Dreamers, who are immigrants who are brought here illegally as children through no fault of their own. Most of them are culturally American, grew up here, don't really have deep connections to another country and so forth. Um, And by the way, lots of Republicans support legalizing the Dreamers. So there you have a, a really what what would be clearly a good deal for Trump, right? I think there was times where Trump has been tempted to do something for the Dreamers. He's a bit of a strange character. He can be reached sort of with sentimentality once in a while, but then the darkness kind of moves in and takes over. You know what I mean? Um, but so Stephen Miller prevailed on Trump to reject a deal that would have given him $25 billion for his wall and given him the talking point that he was the one who got Dreamers legalized, which to everybody who doesn't see the world as Stephen Miller does, would have been a highly admirable thing. Yeah. Well, but Stephen Miller is a big part of Trump world. And we need uh, we need to understand that presidents aren't aren't, you know, lone actors. They come in with a team. Um, and the Biden team has been incredibly talented and done uh, remarkable things. Um, and, you, you know, before we got on the air, you were talking about the unbelievable yet again jobs report. I mean, a, a team of people in, in the White House can do a lot of good um, as well as a lot of ill. Well, yeah, and I, I think this is this is going to be a big deal um, because, look, Trump and MAGA really thrive on perceptions that nothing can be improved, right? That that's sort of at, at the at the most base level for them. The country has to be perceived as unmanageable and in crisis and and irredeemably in trouble. But these types of jobs reports, I think, kind of blow through that level of pessimism about what's going on and could change perceptions enough. I mean, look, Biden is trailing the economy. I think that's a really serious problem. And there's been extensive debate about why that is. And I don't really know why it is. I don't think anybody does. But this type of report at least has the, 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 the offers the chance of changing those perceptions. And, and we have to kind of grab at that chance and hope that it'll pan out. Yeah, reality has a habit of intervening. It's just taking a long time. And the reality is that Americans are better off than they were four years ago um, in in so many ways. I mean, it's a big country. It's hard to lift everybody at the same time. It's hard to turn the ship in a different direction. It's gone for 30 years um, to close that enormous wealth gap. But this administration and and the last Congress did things that are moving us in that direction. And um, I think we have a year to talk about that. I'm confident that reality will break through the barrier of nonsense. At least I hope, but that's why that's why you write. (laughs) Well, yeah, also, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think it's an important point, too. I think we kind of psych ourselves out of thinking that reality can matter. Yeah. Right. That's 
That's a very big part of the Trump slash MAGA project, right? Yes. LOL, nothing matters. It's kind of right. It's an online. We meme. can have our LOL, facts. LOL, nothing matters. It doesn't matter, right? Our facts right. are as good as your facts, even if they're fantasy. Yeah. Right. And he's, but he's not invincible, right? They have lost the last three elections, the last three national elections. So facts mattered in all those elections. Yep, and they sure did. For some reason, we forget that that was the record under Trump. He won in 2016, but didn't even win the popular vote. And there were all kinds of fluky conditions that led to that happening. Right. Yep. I, I wouldn't, I'm not saying that Hillary Clinton and Democrats don't bear some of the blame. They do. But there were flukes okay. that intervened. And that's just a fact. And 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 as a, and Trump didn't even win the popular vote. But yep. then they lost a blowout in 2018. Biden won a comfortable win in 2020. And then in 2022, Democrats dramatically overperformed. So we keep thinking Trump is winning, but he's not winning. He's losing. He's losing. Yep. And, and, and he's losing in elections. He's losing in courts. Um, I mean, everywhere you everything he touches goes to junk. Hey, speaking of losing, right. if you're a Trump supporter and you thought you were scammed into um, give me money because the election was stolen and we need, you know, to fight it in court. And now you find out you've spent 50 million dollars um, trying to uh, argue that he wasn't a rapist in court. Aren't you going to say like, wow, that well, I didn't want my money spent that way. But he's got this scam that's got him taking their money for his own legal bills. I think you've also written about that. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that bothers me about it a lot is that I think probably a lot of his uh, uh, small donors are perfectly aware that that's where some of the money is going and they think it's good. Right. I mean, Trump was very careful to lay the groundwork for all of this. Right. During the the aftermath of or in the run up to, to January 6th and then in the aftermath, he really did talk endlessly about he conditioned his supporters to an extraordinary degree to see him as the victim of the situation. Right. So the election was stolen from him. And as he told them, the election was stolen from you. He's speaking to his supporters, right? Mm -hmm. He made sure to tell his supporters that they were the victims too, right? And then now that he's being prosecuted for the for the alleged crimes he committed to overturn that election, he's saying that they are the victims of that prosecution too. So when he goes out and says, I am your retribution, that's what he's doing. He's getting his masses of followers to essentially say to themselves, his struggle is my struggle. His victimization is my victimization. And so they think they're sending money to a cause that benefits them. Look, but Greg, I, I actually I follow that and I understand it when it comes to litigation around the election, litigation, even around his role as an insurrectionist. But his role as a rapist and a slanderer, I mean, to use the money for that defense, that's not something he advertised for sure. Yes, and I think, so this is back to what we were talking about earlier about Trump not being invincible, right? Yep. He, there's a reason he cranks out 50 tweets about, or whatever you call them on, on his site, yeah. about Eugene Carroll, right? He knows he's vulnerable to the, to the argument that, well, okay, now a jury of your peers 
said that it's been proven sufficiently that you committed sexual assault. Right? Yeah, twice. He knows yeah. he's vulnerable to that. He knows yep. he can't lie that out of existence with his kind of magical lying powers, right? And so he is really, I think, really panicked about the politics of that. And look, I think probably his core supporters do see that as of a piece with everything else. It's just more bullshit made up to go after Trump, et cetera, et cetera. But he doesn't think that he can make the middle of the country see that. I believe. I, I think he thinks he cannot. He, he loses that argument with the middle. Right. That's why they have their back channeled everybody else. And they try and keep them separate. Really important to uncover what they're saying to themselves. Hey, you, you wrote this book in 2018, Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in the Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. And it was fabulous. But I got to ask you, oh, six you. years on, it's been six years, um, are we oh. taking our democracy back. What lessons have we learned? Is the counsel you gave us then the counsel you would give us today? Yeah, I think so. I think the the idea that you just have to kind of scrap it out, right, with a lot of small ball is sort of Mm -hmm. being shown to be true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, this gets back to the sort of fatalism I think we talked about earlier, right? It's easy to get fatalistic about the larger picture when you're just grinding it out for little victories here and there. But it's important not to, to, to feel that way, I think. Every little victory counts, and, 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 and kind of keeping in the game is, is critical. Yeah, I mean, for most of our history, maybe not in the last 30 years, but for most of our history, democracy is a mess. It's one of the reasons why authoritarians, you know, are so terrified of it. It's messy, right? And um, uh, Donald Trump's doing things that are appalling and promising to do things that are unimaginably cruel. But all over the country, people are sort of getting together and saying, you know what? No. Like, you want to take my books away from my kids in school? No, you can't take over my school board. And it's those fights that add up, I think is what you're saying. And I totally agree. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the school board stuff, because that really is a case where this dynamic applies in a big way, right? If you may, re- you may recall that after Glenn Youngkin won the Virginia governor's race in 2021, on a quote-unquote parents' rights platform, there was a lot of hand-wringing among liberals and Democrats to the effect that we've lost the culture wars, right? We have to concede. We have to, we have to sort of take those off the table. We have to reduce our commitments to civil rights in, in certain ways because we've won that argument, right? But a fair amount of people out there didn't do that. Instead, they said, let's try to figure out how to win these arguments better, right? And and so you had kind of a, what I've been calling a liberal counter mobilization developing in all kinds of strange places, right? Um, in red areas as well as blue, you've seen liberals and Democrats kind of organize to take back school boards, to prevent libraries from closing, to block lunatic book bans and so forth, right? And then in 2023, the Virginia Democratic Party was able to win elections in places that Youngkin triumphed in only two years earlier, while also arguing pretty robustly in favor of social liberalism and not backing down on all these things. And 
you saw this in school boards across the country. Moms for Liberty has been getting pretty badly routed. And that was an example of where fatalism could have taken that possibility off the table. But people counter-organized instead and, and got to work, which, yeah. which I think is the way to, we should take a lesson from all that. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot. I talk to journalists like you on this show, but I also talk to people who are out organizing and creating those on-ramps for Americans who, you know, may not want to be in the Democratic Party, um, but are pissed off at being told what they can't do by MAGA. You can't read a book. You can't have an abortion. You can't drive somebody to the border of your state, you know, um, or, you know, being told you have to be walking down a street that's filled with guns. You have no choice. Being told all that's pissing people off and they are organizing and finding new ways to organize all over the country. I think that's a very inspiring story that we're going to be able to tell out of all of this. Agree a hundred percent. And let me say though, <laughs> winning in, in this fall is going to be kind of critical to to, to being able to keep up yeah. the inspiring states, obviously. Uh, yep. Um, hey, over time reading your work and the news generally, I come away convinced that the MAGA movement, which I think now is functionally indistinguishable from the GOP, that they've created sort of a self-reinforcing momentum, and whether it's you know, CRT or the border or unisex bathrooms, They're, they've now put themselves in this weird place where they have to manufacture a new crisis that beats the old one because they are so radicalized. And they have this, this, um, I don't know what's the right way to describe it, toxic jingoism, right? That's created like this irresistible energy to champion division and to demand domination. And and, and so the issues themselves, they just don't matter anymore because the radicalization is the cause and the end of this dynamic. Um, and the issues are just their vehicle. It, it, that that Does that sound possible to you? Am I... Yes, I think I, I agree that the radicalization is the end. Absolutely. Right. It's it's a lot of this politics is really just about the creation of enemies to hunt perpetual. It's a perpetual enemy hunting impulse. Right. There, there's always a new enemy that's created, whether it's woke corporations. Right. Or the latest caravan that seems to only appear when elections are looming. <laughs> right. Yep. yep. Uh, or it's it's. It's the deep state persecuting Catholics. I don't know if you've seen that one. That's been rattling yes, around for many that. months yep. now. Yep. Right. Or they're going after parents for being parents, right? The jackbooted beds are going after parents. All of it's made up, right? And the impulse there isn't to affect an actual change in policy or anything like that. It's just to gin up a, a, a certain subset of, of the electorate by telling them that they're constantly being victimized and terrorized and and should be should be perpetually frightened of whatever phantom enemy they're inventing at the moment. Yeah, but it's so difficult to grapple with the consequences of that, right? Because they 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 are provoking a sort of winner take all crisis. But in order to do it, they have to further radicalize their group. So it becomes less like all of America. And this now 
absolutely radicalized minority is saying, we're going to win and take everything, or we're going to lose everything. And there is no in between. We won't do a deal on the border. We won't do a deal even to get tax cuts for corporations this week. We just won't do it. It's winner take all. And so I guess I have to ask, are the rest of us ready for those consequences? And can Democrats understand what it means to actually win when you're faced with um, a, a radicalized group that that will not accept n- normalcy? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish I felt confident that the vast majority of grassroots Democrats understand that that's stake. I'm just not sure if they do or not. How do you feel about that? I mean, does that seem reasonable to you? Uh, it's, it's not clear that the, that the true nature of the MAGA movement is really breaking through on the scale we need it to, although I will say it does seem that the last three national elections, and I think some of the special elections throughout last year, have kind of shown that there really is what uh, Democratic strategist Simon Rosenberg calls an anti-democratic or anti-anti-maga majority out there, which is which is a pushback against anti-democratic sentiment, right? Um, yeah, I, I think it's such a good question. Through. I I don't know if it will or won't. I think um, I do this. I have this radio show and I write and talk to people all the time, as does Simon. And he's he was on last week on this show talking about this and and your writing. We're all trying to alert the country to what's going on. But we have this going for us. I mean, you know, Americans pay attention to what they pay attention to. It turns out that some people care about uh, women's reproductive Freedom. Some people care about sensible gun laws. Some people care about civil rights. Some people care about voting rights. Some people care about foreign policy. You know, some people care about reading books. And it turns out that MAGA has made enemies of all of them. Right. So that the, the, the coalition. Right. So, right. Some people are going to do this fight because they really understand the threat to democracy. Most are going to do it for other reasons, but they've made you know, I mean, they've made enemies everywhere. That's very I find that very interesting, this idea that that the anti-MAGA majority kind of broadly construed is is made up of component parts. It's not all it's not all an, an anti anti-democratic movement. It's not all an a pro-choice movement, right? It's not all a pro books in schools movement. It's it's, it's made up of these different uh, groups that are reacting against various uh, degradations on the right and, and 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 are motivated by those degradations in their own ways. And and what I find comforting is a change in the. In the in in democratic politics, and here I'm not talking. I'm talking about Democratic Party politics. When I grew up, the Democratic Party as a party consisted of um, labor unions and big city mayors. That was how it was organized, um, and and still a big part of the Democratic Party. But the in in places where the parties made the most progress in Michigan in Minnesota, um, in, in, even in Wisconsin, you know, all around the Great Lakes, but in Arizona too. Um, what's happened is that the, the party organizations have figured out that they have to work with people who don't want to be part of any political party. And they figured out how to do it. 
And so, so there are these these different groups who have set aside sort of more traditional animosities and have learned to work together. And I, I mean, I see that in, on the ground when I talk to organizers, both in the party and out of it. Um, and I find that very motivating. That's really, really interesting. I'd, I'd like to hear more. Have you? I mean, I, I'm going to ask this right on the show. Can you? When we're done, can you send me a, a piece or two that you've written along those lines? Sure, happy to. Um, and 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 I'll share with you sort of the names of people who are running these organizations. They they come on the show and they talk about what they're doing. I, I think of Swing Left is one that had a big role in Virginia. We just talked right. about that, right? And they create these on ramps for people who don't, you know, they're not Democrat, they're not Democratic Party members. They're just people who, you know, care about any of these issues, right? That sort of a one. Yes, and, right, right, right. Right. And then you get you, you get party leaders like Lavora Barnes in Michigan and Ben Wickler in Wisconsin, who figured out that their party is going to win if they play nice with everybody else and help those other people make the difference they want to make in their communities. Yeah, I mean, Ben Wickler and, and what's going on in Wisconsin is highly inspiring, as is what's going on in Michigan, which, by the way, I think that's something that doesn't get nearly enough attention from national pundits. What's going on uh, in Michigan Democrats? The, 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 I, I am so proud of the Great Lakes. You know, we are we, we, we are just doing it. We're gonna, and the, the fight to turn Michigan around. Awesome. Um, even here in my state of Illinois, which had a Republican governor not long ago and has had a bipartisan mess for many years, is moving in the right direction. Um, uh, Minnesota has done unbelievable things, um, a real sort yeah. of test case for some of the progressive ideas. Um, so, you know, I think the Great Lakes is showing what can happen when you take real traditional old school kind of Democratic Party that people didn't love and say, you know what, this group is going to work with ordinary folks who care about their issues in their communities and make a difference. And um, I just think it's exciting. And I think I'm hoping that if you keep doing the writing that you do and showing everybody the big picture, that we'll have the energy to get through this year. It's interesting, too, to think that that's the place where that was that was the epicenter of democratic demor, de, de, demobilization and demoralization back in 2016, because Trump cracked the three blue wall states of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan. Yep. Um, and for that to be kind of the the, the 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 proving ground for this new emerging democratic politics is is also an inspiring thing, right? Yeah, I think the other way to say it um, that people will understand is very serious buyer's remorse for that one. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really, I, I hope that's right. I mean, I think a very good example of this was when when Trump uh, went out there to 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 try and take to try and take union votes away from uh, President Biden, right? Very recently, but then of course it all blew up in his face because the, the UAW ended up endorsing. You're familiar with the episode, right? You can really speak more directly to it. You well, I have a question for you. It's a I have a question for you, and it's about journalists, right? Um, Trump said in this fraught moment several months ago, I'm going to go speak to union workers in Michigan. 
Biden went and spoke to union workers in Michigan. And there were days of stories of Trump's going to go speak to union workers in Michigan. Of course, he didn't ever go speak to union workers in Michigan, right? He went to a non-union plant and you know, ho-hummed and left, right? So how is it that this many years later, journalists are still, you know, saying it's a fact that Trump is going to do something just because he said he was going to do it? Have we not learned that like, oh, he's going to give us a health care plan? Really? He's going to release his taxes. Really? You know, like, why do we fall for that? Yeah, that episode was absolutely miserable. It was a miserable failure on the part of the press. And and I think what was driving it is it makes it actually even more frustrating. Right. The, The idea that Trump is taking union voters away from the Democrat who who prides himself as being a pro pro labor pro labor old fashioned dem type yep. Scranton and all the rest of it, right? That was too irresistible a story for a lot of mainstream reporters to resist. And so they just swallowed it hook, line and sinker. It was an absolutely disgraceful performance. Yeah. Well, uh, so you've been very generous with your time. I know you have deadlines. Um, Would you tell people before you go, just like, you know, you're now at the New Republic. You have a podcast that comes out, I think, every day. Tell people how they can follow your stuff and how they can um, uh, uh, get in contact. Sure. I'm I'm at the New Republic now. We have a podcast called The Daily Blast that comes out five times a week. And you'll probably recognize what a grind that is, yeah. <laughs> being somebody who does this yourself. Um, but it's it's a labor of love. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Greg T. Sargent, S-A-R-G-E-N-T, and New Republic is newrepublic.com. And people should check out Blue Sky, by the way. There's some Good conversations happening there without all the white nationalist musky and lunacy. Highly recommend it. I'm on right. Blue Sky, but I don't know. I don't really know how to describe what uh, my handle is yet. Well, we'll just have to hunt for it. And, and th- for those of you listening, if I figure it out, I'll let you, I promise I'll let you know. Greg, really appreciate this conversation. I hope we can do it again as the year rolls Absolutely. on us. We'll have a great you. day. Thanks so yep. much. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, I am thrilled to be joined by my friend Jill Lawrence. She's back. You know her. She has been a a smart opinion writer, book author uh, for a long time, helps us make sense of this crazy politics and this difficult government that we have. You can find her work now on The Bulwark and occasionally still in these legacy publications, and we're going to talk about one of those soon. Hi, Jill. Hi, Edwin. Thank you for having me. It's always fun, Jill. I've had, um, (laughs) before you were on, I had uh, a couple other journalists today, um, Greg Sargent and Barton Gelman, um, and I want to sort of talk to you about what they said and get your take on that. But before we do that... Greg and I are uh, very good social media friends, so... (laughs) I'll be interested to hear what his take is. But you've been busy, and I understand a piece of yours on the South Carolina primary is running in the L.A. Times tomorrow. You want to preview it for us? Well, that's what they tell me, but, you know, you never know. But so far, so good. Um, Well, it's about not the, the election that's happening today. It's about the Republican primary. 
and mm-hmm. it's uh, you know it's it, it's it's not unusual for somebody who was a governor or a senator in a state to not have everyone in the state loving that they're running for president. That's kind of been an unusual quirk of 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 state polls before presidential elections. But I, I think in this case with Donald Trump and Nikki Haley head to head for the first time in this uh, in this election on the 24th of this month, um, it's it's going to be weird because, you know, there are a lot of reasons to vote for her over him, uh, but people are still choosing him in polls in her home state by 25, 30 points, which is, you know, no different than anywhere else he's been. And it speaks to the hold that Trump has over his supporters, uh, even in a place where until recently, um, Haley was, you know, quite popular, uh, very good approval, you know, 59 or 60 percent approval in uh, November, um, fallen a little since Trump has begun attacking her, but people still saying they, you know, the majority still saying they'd be enthused or, or satisfied if she were the nominee, national nominee. So it's it's going to be interesting to see, you know, first of all, how many Democrats sit it out today in their primary so they can vote in the Republican primary later this month. And, and they and if they're very never Trumpy, you know, then they'll they'll wait it out and vote for Haley in the primary. I don't think too many people are going to be that strategic. It's just not, you know, that common to be able to wipe out the kind of lead that he's piling up in these polls. So I guess we'll see. But, uh, you know, there's. There's not. It, it doesn't look to me like she's going to pull this out, and it also doesn't look to me like like Joe Biden's going to get a huge turnout for a primary that's not really at issue today. Yeah, I mean the Democrats don't really have a primary season, um, notwithstanding Dean Phillips' best efforts. He's not going to scratch the surface, so it's you know uh, that, that that's expected, but. Why is she doing so poorly? I mean, this is she's not doing poorly in the general population, but among Republican voters, I guess if you, you know, are willing to take down a, 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 um, the Confederate flag, you're now disqualified in MAGA world. Well, you know, a lot of South Carolinians will tell you, and it's pretty clear to me as well, she's not a moderate. You know, she and I've written plenty that's very critical of her in terms of she's been all over the place in the primaries season. She's, you know, I think a piece I wrote for the Bulwark was called Haley stands for everything and nothing because she kept fudging on the key issues of the day, uh, abortion, um, Trump, Trump and his trials. Uh, She fudged on the Civil War in New Hampshire. You know, she just kind of. She's been a little bit more straightforward now because it's come down to crunch time. But I'm not sure that's going to help her because she's a reality-based, normal, conservative Republican with uh, views that are very much out of the mainstream in this party. For instance, support for Ukraine and not wanting Russia to get a foothold in Europe. I got to go back. I apologize for one second. Um, You said, you know, she's... She's been all over the place on the issues of the day. And one of the issues of the day that you listed was the causes of the Civil War. Now, what does it say that in 2024, the causes of the Civil War are one of the issues of the day? 
Um, I think that was a test by a, by a questioner to see how straightforward she would be. And, you know, it, it's a lot more of a sensitive issue in South Carolina than it might be in uh, in North New Hampshire. Uh, you know, they're not the same kind of Republicans. And, and this is... I mean, it's it's hard when you're learning the country for the first time. I'm not sympathizing with her. It was idiotic. I mean, she could have said, she could have laid it on the secessionists. She could have said the founding documents, you know, the secessionist documents, the original sources, they, they say slavery. You know, that's what they say. So she didn't even have to take responsibility for the answer, but I'm not sure that even, you know, I, I just, it just seems like there was no gain to be made there by being evasive and treating it yes. like a trick question. But she thought, for instance, that and she's probably right, that in the world of the 1776 project, in the world of the fantasy of U.S. history that is being taught in our schools by people buying curriculum from uh you know, Prager U, which isn't a university that teaches us that, gee whiz, black folks learned a lot of skills during slavery. I mean, that's that's a that's a thing in America these days. And that, that in 2024, that's a thing. And one of our political parties has gone down that rap hole is so depressing. I just yeah. and infuriating. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at look at what happened right before that New Hampshire primary. I can't remember whether that uh, meeting was before or after Chris Christie dropped out, but he just went all out, you know, tell the truth about everything. Um, and I have no doubt he would have condemned slavery at the top of his lungs if that question had been, you know, directed to him. But but look what happened to him. It, it was a kamikaze mission. It was an entertaining one, and it was an admirable one, but it didn't get him anywhere close to uh, what he wanted, which was the nomination. So, you know, her she's a better politician in, a, in some respects than he was, but, but it's not, you know, who knows what she'd be without Trump and the party or the polarization right now or the whole MAGA movement. I just don't know who she'd be. Right. Well, that tells you something there, too. I mean, Joe Biden, you kind of know who he is, no matter what the fog oh, around him is, you know. And oh, I, think, yeah. I mean, and Donald Trump, you know who he is. I mean, the thing about our, about a presidential primary in America, a presidential election in America, it's so important. We know who our presidents are. By the time the election's over, there's no confusion. You know, I mean, Donald Trump, as bad as he was, he didn't do anything that that struck me as, wow, that is completely out. Of, I had no idea he was capable of that by the time he was there. Uh -uh. Right. No, so, and I went back my whole Every life with presidents. We know who they are. <laughs> Well, everyone kept saying every time he read from a script without going haywire and, you know, there was the whole, oh, my God, he's learning to be president. And then, you know, five minutes later, he wasn't pres acting like a president anymore. So, yeah, no, he, he was who he was. Um, I mean, I'm worried about Nikki Haley in ways that I, you know, I wish I weren't. Uh, you know, she has said she'd pardon Trump. She may have said she'd pardon the January 6th prisoners. I, I can't remember specifically, but she's been very sort of mushy and soft on all of that. And she's attacked the justice system uh, as if it's unfair that, you know, that they've investigated Trump. 
So, you know, these are these are worrisome things. And I, I just don't know who she would have been without this distortional field. Right. But I think that is a disqualifying comment for someone running for president, because we, we you know, you, no one knows what issues are going to come up during a presidency. Right. And Americans, you know, we sort of we talk about how we're going to prepare for this and COVID happens. Right. We, we don't know what's that. We can't have a crystal ball. So we count on understanding something about the character of the people we elect, the character right. of the people that are around, their point of view. And if she wants to obscure hers because she is unwilling to, you know, be accountable for who she is, that's that's a disqualification when you are electing somebody to lead a nation yeah. in an uncertain future. I mean, we, we totally lucked out on covid because. Somehow, Trump just signed off on fast-tracking a vaccine before he knew that that was going to be a bad political move, even though it was a life-saving move. I mean, you know, himself, he would have talked about injecting disinfectant and taking ivermectin and, you know, maybe sunlight will do it and whatever he was talking about up there. But, but he got what we needed done, which was just astonishing in retrospect because we did One know who he was. One of his two accomplishments. Right. That and the Abraham Accords, I think, are his only two accomplishments, but they are actual real accomplishments. Right. But who was driving them? That's the question. I think it was his son-in-law who was driving the, the Abraham Accords. And I think it was somebody, somebody in the FDA or, or somewhere in his circle who thought, you know, we don't want millions of people to die. I mean, millions of people did die, but we don't want unnecessary deaths. Um, and that, I think, was also disqualifying about Ron DeSantis, which I wrote several times, you know, that he appointed a quack as as attorney, as surgeon general in Florida. And, uh, you know, he turned against vaccinations and science and and uh, recommended against the latest vaccine, which I think helped me weather my first bout of covid in five not so terrible days. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's. I'm very grateful. I once wrote a Thanksgiving column in which I thanked Donald Trump for for fast tracking the vaccine. And if yeah, you know it, me, it, you know I'm not, I, I don't thank I, him very often. No, no, look, I you know I was not a fan of W's presidency, and certainly we are still living with the damage he caused the entire world with his Iraq war. But the PEPFAR program that he ran that these current Republicans are trying to kill has saved millions of lives um, of people who would otherwise have died of AIDS, HIV. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, he wanted immigration reform. He came very close. Yes. Yes. So, you know, it's we're just in a whole new era, an era of, you know, polar. Go ahead. You you've written about how deals get done in Washington. Right. You this is something you know. Are we gonna get this immigration deal or is it just dead, dead, dead? You know, sometimes when our speaker Mike Johnson is being his worst, I think I wonder if he's trying to give himself cover for when he does something rational. Um I don't I mean that's a strange way of looking at it, but um, unless he's planning on on uh, killing his own speakership, um, I mean he's you know the the Senate is working on these bills and so is the, the Senate and and the House. Kay Granger, the Appropriations Chairman in the House, who is 
is retiring, um, you know, they have people who are serious about about allocating this money in constructive ways. And I think it's going to be a tough thing when we finally get to these government shutdown deadlines, the two new ones. And he's going to have to fall on his sword and say, yes, I really meant it. We are going to abide by this debt deal um, that that my predecessor negotiated. And the other thing about negotiations is that it's always – um, unlike what Senator McCain used to say, it's not darkest right before it gets totally black. It's darkest actually before it gets light. And so you'll have headlines about how things completely fall apart and then suddenly they get revived. And, and that happens with the deal on veterans health where there were those, there was a fake waiting list to make believe that people weren't getting, you know, people were getting prompt attention and didn't have to wait. That actually mm-hmm. happens with the Inflation Reduction Act, where Joe Biden—I mean, sorry, Joe Manchin—walked away, and uh, you know, and then he walked back to the negotiating table, and things got done. And uh, Kirsten Cinema, who for some strange reason was, drew the line at raising rates on tax rates on corporations and wealthy people, did not mind closing loopholes and get on uh, that they used and getting money that way. I mean, people find ways in the crunch. And so I have not given up. I, I just don't think that I, I don't see how they can give up on Ukraine. How can they? Uh, uh, the, the unthinkable is no longer unthinkable. I mean, how can you storm the U.S. Capitol and try and stop the certification of an election? How can they? How can they? Um, say to the United States government, you're not allowed to patrol the southern border because we would rather do it from, te- you know, with our own troops in Texas. We've passed oh, the place of of it's not it's not conceivable anymore. Um, right. Um, yeah. All right. Let me talk about something well, else. Uh, you're also um, focused on young people and what's going to happen. And I'm really interested mm-hmm. in what you what you've thought about them. I hear I have some in my family, <laughs> so I've heard a lot about what's like floating around social media, you know, and what what the thinking is. And it's a bit of a herd, but um, I, I I mean I'm really interested in what you found. Well, I've, I have found in, in polls, and I also have young people in my family, including two guys in their 30s who were Bernie bros in 2016, and uh, one who is considering never having kids if he has the opportunity because of the climate. And, you know, I mean, they're just right in the middle of that whole thing. And, and the pandemic, uh, one of them just really took an economic hit in the pandemic. And so, you know, it's not... Um, it's not surprising that economics, jobs, gun violence, climate, these are the young people's top issues, both from my anecdotal evidence and from polls of young people. I mean, you know, there's a poll from Harvard that found that young people were not as interested in voting this year as they were in 2020. And that one topped out at age 30. Polls of slightly older people, you know, up to age 34, it looks like they do plan to vote, but there's a less of a, there, there's, uh, this is a Tufts poll, Tufts University. It looks like they are less likely if they're black and they're less likely if they're young people of color in rural areas. So it's, you know, it's a mixed bag. And I do think that, um, that Joe Biden has, 
a good record to sell to these people on all of those issues. Uh, I mean, gun violence is the most intractable to me because it's the one where people just don't seem to want to look at the evidence and and, and pass the solutions. Um, climate you know, Biden has already done a lot on, although, ironically, he's presiding over the highest level of oil production in, in history and the most exports in history. So and he's also making the most climate investment in history. So, you know, it's it's a mixed bag, but it's I think there's ways to explain it. And he's also doing things like not in a big, splashy way, but in a program-by-program way, using regulations and legal means, he is reducing a a ton of student debt, relieving a a lot of um, debt that was, you know, still being paid due to mismanagement or that was supposed to be income-based and, and, uh, you know, it hasn't been calculated correctly or just, you know, looking at these programs and looking at what's, um, what's happened, he's managed to help a lot of people. And so... You know, the campaign hasn't really started yet. Let's see what they got. I think I, the I actually, contrast uh, is so uh, good for Democrats. Uh, I mean, the, mm-hmm. you, have a, you have madness on one side. And um, <clears throat> I don't know, I don't want to spend too much time on that. On the Democratic side, I mean, the, the, the performance has been spectacular. Not perfect, because it can't be perfect. But on, on every measure, things are moving in a better direction than they, than they have been. Um, and that doesn't mean everybody's benefited from it yet. Um, and this very complicated world that he inherited, you know, I mean, these wars could have cycled incredibly out of control and bigger and been mass slaughter mm-hmm. at, a, at, a, at an extent that makes, you know, the, the tragedy in Gaza look little. And but and he has he has so far helped that from happening. Right. I mean, I saw one uh, statistic today that suggested that what people are remembering about the Trump era, some of them, uh, and why the race is so even, is that before the pandemic, the economy was really doing well, and people remember that. Um, and and I'm not sure why they're not giving Biden's economy a chance, but I think he has time to fix that. And I also think the economy is gradually fixing itself. I mean, I know personally uh, how difficult it is to get past the pandemic. The supply chain disruptions that we all experienced, I mean, you know, from peanut butter to medical supplies. I mean, I get, I, I overbuy, I overorder, I have a supply closet filled with peanut butter because Peter Pan was gone from the shelf for, for, you know, months at a time. I mean, it's like, when do you get over this? I don't know. It's, I'm not saying it's like the Great Depression, but I, I find it hard to let go. And so, but I think possibly by the end of the year, if the economy keeps chugging, we will be, we will be over it. Yeah, I, I mean, reality is intervening and reality is getting better. But on your supply closet, something else has changed. Uh-huh. It's not just your COVID hangover. Corporate America has um, – there's been an awful lot of of um, huge corporate profits, particularly in the food industry, right? So, that, so right. they're um, capitalizing on, oh, my gosh, I can raise prices right now. And so there's been a lot of that. And as part of that, there's this we, – we can overstock and sell a lot. And then there's Tuesday, we're going to sell, you, you can get a deal on Jiffy if you buy like 12, you know, 12 jars. Of it. <laughs> right. 
right? So, so right. I mean, you, you're, the incentive that they have figured out is why all of us have like piles of you know, stuff in corners that we didn't use. <laughs> well, I'm in no danger of running out of peanut butter, and I hope you aren't either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's, it's not just it's 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 corporate decision making that is impacting your purchasing habits as much as it is the uh, memory of the COVID. Um, well, it's problem. true. It's true. I will. I will. I will get that bargain. I brought home four bags of potato chips for my husband the other day, and he was, you know, wrong with you. <laughs> I, I gotta say, I, I can't imagine that would be my response. My response would be, let's <laughs> let's find a, let's find like twelve movies and get going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're all in recovery at various stages. So, uh, <laughs> but I, yeah. I do think, you know, for the kids, for the for the young people, I, I'm getting the generations confused now. But the the twenties and thirties, you know, that pandemic hit right when my kids were thinking about. You know, one was engaged and one uh, was just starting to blossom in his career and the engagement died after the pandemic and the career of the other one. I mean, they both, you know, it's just it's been a hard time. And, uh, you know, it's it's it, I, I I would say that, you know, I don't understand why the economy is such a concern for young people. But I think I do understand that, that they were just getting going, you know, when this happened. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, you know, um, like the like the AIDS crisis was in the gay community. The pandemic was for the whole country. And it's an enormously disruptive, terrifying um, uh, period that has lasting impact. I think that's true. And I don't think we even realize how it's impacting us. I mean, we got out of the habit of, of going out. And now now I've you know, now I'm older and now I'm less. Uh, and I still worry about COVID, especially mm-hmm. in the winter. And, you know, mm-hmm. things have changed, I think, permanently, although I'm, I think people are trying to get back into their normal lives, whatever that may be now. Jill, I hate to say this, but as usual, we've run out of time long before we've run out of things to talk about. So we're going to have to do this again, again. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot for, for having you. me on. And, uh, chatting about everything. Great pleasure, Jill. You take care. You too. All right, everybody. That was the you know wonderful opinion writer, Jill Lawrence. We're going to take a news break. And uh, David Pepper's joining me when we come back. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. All right, everybody. Welcome back. I'm joined again by David Pepper, who has... I think worked harder than anyone in the country to alert all of us, you know, as, as accustomed as we are to watching national news and getting our news um, out of Washington, that the greatest threat to the democracy is happening at the state level. Um, and uh, he's written books about it. Laboratories of Autocracy is what, three years old, David, now? Um, yeah, uh, close to it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it's done an enormous job of waking all of us up to this problem. Anyway, welcome back, David. Thank you. Good to be with you again. Hey, again, I've been talking to, you know, brilliant journalists on this show today and in the past, and they 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 have they they get sort of that things are going on in the States, but there's not they're not organized to think about it 
right. and write about it. And that means that people who, you know, who listen to shows like this around the country, although they're not nearly enough of them, um, um, but, you know, they watch MSNBC or something and, and they they just they're going to miss the central problem of our time, which is the one you've been talking about now for a few years. How do we how, like, what do we tell them? How do we get reinforcements to pay attention to this? I mean, I, I it's this is why I wrote the first book with such exasperation. If you the title Laboratories of Autocracy is clearly someone who's trying to wake people up. And then the second headline of the book is a wake up call from behind the lines. And I did a I did a whiteboard this week, and I you know one way to do it is uh, it's very blunt spoken reality I try and present. But think about the big picture that we've seen for twenty thirty years. You know, for the most part, I don't want to overstate this, but outside of the first two years of a presidency, nothing really happens in Washington. You know, look at look at right now. You know, we've got the filibuster stopping things on the Senate side. We've got this goofy speaker of ours now stopping anything that comes out of the Senate. Nothing happens. And that's basically what ha- in Washington, there's so much coverage of nothing happening in the end. That's the reality. And the flip side, back in these state houses, a ton happens. And what's happening in most of these red states, the entire right-wing agenda is going full bore, full forward all the time. You know, whether it's climate stuff or censoring schools or cutting or cutting public schools or attacking labor, and that gets no coverage. And so if you look big picture, we're covering the place where nothing happens, and we're largely not covering the place where the entire right-wing agenda goes through. And over time, that is the pattern, and it's it's a pattern that is a slow sinking of democracy. So I think we all have to focus on this, but I think the media as well, like you're saying, needs to figure out how do we balance it out so that if it's about the substance of this far-right agenda, how do we cover its implementation through states as much as we cover the fact that nothing happened in Washington? So I, you know, I do my best. I, I give, you know, I, I do get some some attention for it, but it's, yeah, it's not the balance of what's happening where that, that we need to. And, and then we make the mistake of equating it all to Trump. Of course, Trump is, is a you know overwhelming threat to our democracy. And that also becomes a problem that we sort of, we sort of equate him to the entire subversion of democracy. I wish he was the only problem, but as I try and say all the time, if he were locked up tomorrow, or let's say disqualified from running do we think the attacks on democracy that we're seeing in states would stop? Of course not. They'd all continue. So there's so, there's a lot more to this than simply one person who manages to sort of personify the problem. Yep. One of the prob- one of the attacks is one that I've talked about with other guests, but you and I haven't really talked about it very much, and that's the um, uh, sale of public education to yeah. the highest bidder. You know, um, some of the people I've talked to say it's entirely about funding religious schools, but it's also a a vicious cycle of graft and bribery for the the legislators. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sadly, we're living it in Ohio, but it's exploding around the country. It's exploding around the country. So what it it's both. I mean, in some cases, we've had in Ohio massive giveaways that were clearly just about what you just described. Pay to play, profiteering, and a bunch of the money goes back to the politicians as massive contributions. 
um, we had that. And it, it, the, the school involved wasn't religious. It was simply a for-profit scam. Mm-hmm. Ironically, it was an online scam. You know, Republicans went off after COVID shut down schools for several months and said, look how terrible teaching at home is. And obviously, it's a challenge for many students. And, and the, the lesser, the better overall. Well, for the last 10 years, the Republican policy of Ohio has been to put as many students on the computers at home learning as possible. Why? Because they were making a lot of money and contributions from the scam that set that up. And, and while kids' educations were failing. So we've had the total sort of using public funds as a piggy bank scam. And, but now we are also seeing, and it's happening in Ohio and Arizona, other Florida, other states, some Republicans to the credit have voted with Democrats to stop it. But this universal voucherization, it's, this is no longer about, you know, a few poor kids. And, and the, the narrative originally was, well, this is to help kids in, you know, a, a poor Cleveland district go to a better school. Now, and that was that was how it was sold, you know, 20 years ago. Now what we are seeing is a, quote, universal voucher, no restriction on income and no restriction if you ever went to a public school at all. And so what we're seeing around states like Ohio and Arizona is an explosion of vouchers that are going to pay middle and upper class kids to go to the same private school they always went to. Yet now they get it subsidized. And we are finding that it's exploding, that 60, 70, 80 percent. One study came out the other day that a few months ago, they said nine out of the ten dollars going to new vouchers in Ohio are going to middle and upper class kids to go to schools they already went to. And so that's and it's becoming this a huge subsidy of largely private religious education straight out of public funds. And so it's accomplished. And here's why it's so when something on the far right accomplishes multiple goals, you know, supporting those religious schools and keeping the far right on the Christian side happy, um, profiteering with donors, when those multiple goals are all accomplished by one thing, that's when they really go nuts. And that's what's happening. It, it checks many of the boxes that they're trying to yeah. sort of accomplish. And crushing so, uh, public schools, and frankly, they hate the public unions too. So they yep. they get so much done with this one big move, and that's why you see it happening in states across the country so rapidly. Well, reality is going to bite them as it always will when they run out of cash because it's enormously expensive, um, and they're going to find. Yep. Yeah, we're at a billion dollars in Ohio. Yeah, crazy. I, I, I want to ask you. Know, though, there's another way it's going to run out on them, though. People like their local public schools, and yeah, in rural, rural parts of Ohio, yeah, in yeah. rural America, the, the that public school is the heart of the entire community. And the reason you saw Texas Republicans and Georgia Republicans actually join with Democrats to stop Governor Abbott and Governor Kemp's universal voucher schemes was because those rural Republicans knew that those local communities love their school. They love the sports. They love the academics. They love the culture. It's some of the best jobs in the community. It's some of the leaders of the community. And so they voted no. And now guess what? They're these sort of for-profit privatization PACs attacking them in primaries. But those those Republican legislators voting against these bills is sort of the canary in the coal mine. They know that this is high risk long term. If they are seen as destroying, in some cases, the biggest institution left in struggling rural communities, 
these rural yep. schools that are the centers of communities, I think they actually make themselves very vulnerable long term. It's actually it, it's actually quite unpopular to destroy your local public school, believe it or not. And and I think that if if we're smart about this as Democrats or anyone who cares about these public schools, I actually think long term they're embracing a real third rail of what they're doing. I do, too. I do, too. I mean, in Chicago, where it's not partisan, but uh, for financial reasons, when he was mayor, Rahm Emanuel closed a bunch of schools and he was not for that was the leading, but not the only reason he wasn't able to run again. It's yep. just enormously unpopular. Yeah. Yep. And, what's, yep. and the irony is there's even less of a choice in in a small rural town. It, th- there's no voucher they can there's no school they can take a voucher to. Their their monies are being pushed into other places, but they only have that school, and they've gone to it family year generation to generation, and it's being you know winnowed away by giving away the money. So it's yeah. even more so than in some of the larger communities like Cincinnati. There's no other place, and they like their school. They'll drive hundred miles to watch the the girls' basketball team <laughs> or the boys' football team, and you're going to get rid of that. I, I think Crazy. it really is a third rail if we if we if we frame it the right way. Um, so that's about winning. And I think I think you and I have both talked to people who both are Democratic Party leaders and activists, but also f- folks who don't want to join any political party, but are in this fight for the for a l- bunch of reasons. Either they love the democracy or they are interested in women's rights or, or, or they just want to be able to read books. And they're all playing nicely enough together. This coalition is holding together. And I think it's a powerful and winning one. But I want to ask you a different kind of question. And, I, and I'm one I really am starting to struggle with. I don't know what it means to win. And I don't know what we have to do. I know what we have to do to win an election. Right. 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 But as you said, Donald Trump is not is not the problem. He is a he's a symptom. He's part of the problem. He's whatever he is. It doesn't go away when we beat him. How do we do? Are we you know, it looks like to me the right has said they've radicalized so that so that radicalization is the end in itself, whatever the Mm -hmm. issue they come up with. And. And they and they want to play winner take all, right? They're not going to. They're not right. satisfied with. And forget the border. We don't want to do a deal. It's winner take all. It's our way or no way. Right. How do right. we, who believe in democracy, def- I mean, and I think back after the Civil War, Lincoln said, "You guys don't get to come back until we have passed some constitutional amendments that create new guardrails, so you can't come back and do the same old thing again." But right. today, these guys are smart enough not to have left the government and let us right. do that. What, like, what do we need to do, David? I'm really worried that we're I not mean, tough I think enough the long, to win. I hate this. This is going to sound kind of sobering, but there isn't some moment where democracy is all of a sudden safe. That is, we kind of thought it was after mm-hmm. the you know the sixties and what John Lewis and so many others accomplished. We thought, yeah. okay, we're there. We we're there, and it's over. And the truth is that's never that's never going to be the case. You always have to keep going. But but the win, I would say, in twenty. The good news is what's winning. Well, the last couple of years is actually overall, 
at the state house level up quite successful. Um, you yep. know, flipping some state houses like Michigan, like Pennsylvania, the Minnesota Senate. Then we see real Virginia. progress being made. Yep. Yeah, Virginia, Ohio. And so what I would say, how do we define winning in 24? Obviously, it's to beat Donald Trump. Obviously, it's to keep the Senate. And I think we can flip the House. That's probably the, the, the most reachable of the three goals, although we, we should aim for all three. But then I would say, what's a victorious 24? And by the way, other things of winning, Wisconsin Supreme Court race, and they strike down gerrymandering. Um, massive wins against liber- Moms of Liberty all around the country for school board. So 24 is... We're one seat away from the Arizona State House. Don't just win the presidency in Arizona or the Senate race. Win the Arizona State House. Flip the New Hampshire State House. Hold on to the Pennsylvania State House. You know, take advantage of the fact that we got more people running in Ohio and in North Carolina a few years. And their supermajorities. I mean, that's how we just start running more places in the Texas than we did two years ago, which is happening. We have to start defining winning as sort of that long-term progress where in some cases it's flipping state houses to stop, you know, where do we get phony audits out of that Arizona Republican majority? We can end that majority this November if we're smart enough to run up and down the ballot there, not only focus on Trump. So that's got to, I mean, it sounds in a way more tiring than the, than the silver bullet solution of win the presidency and everything's over. But I think we've learned we did win the presidency in 20 and it didn't all end. I mean, the, the attack on democracy accelerated, it didn't slow down. So it, it may be a longer slog than we want it to be, but we'll do better once we see that reality versus actually trying to simplify it into a few federal races. Um, and the good news is there's a great group of people that in the last couple of years has seen it this way and it's actually worked when we've defined it this way. That's why we had, you know, we did have surprisingly good years in 22 and 23 when, because mm-hmm. we, were, we were in the white house, we were actually supposed to be losing, but we won. And I think that has to be how we keep going. Uh, and, and winning is sort of that, that sort of accumulation of progress over time as opposed to the moments like like a Super Bowl victory, Obama yep. wins in 08, a Biden wins. We think that's it. We want everything. It's over. That was that was those were big moments, of course. But they were when we thought of them as sort of the end of everything. We were we were obviously, I think, blind to what the battle really is. Yep. I think you're completely right. And, and two other things we have going for us. I think um you taught me this in a way. <clears throat> I think running everywhere, we have bottoms up coattails, not top down this time. You get people excited yes. about a school board race. They're, they're people who are going to show up. And you know what? They're going to vote for Biden because they're saving their schools. But maybe they wouldn't have shown up if it weren't for their schools. Absolutely. So I mean, we got bottoms we, up coattails. You see the polling. We see the polling. I mean, he's got work to do to get young people fired up. He's got work yep. to do to, to co- coalesce everyone around him. <laughs> But if you have a, you know, a next gen person running for that state house, that may be why the person shows up. If that next gen candidate and all his or her volunteers knock on doors, 20,000 doors in the district, that may be why they show up. So if we can take that same energy that, that the surprising wins in the Virginia state house, for example, and mm-hmm. that's all of a sudden what the state of Arizona looks like in this year's state house races, then yeah, that, that could have exactly what you're, what you're describing. I hate to say it, there were no coattails in 20. Biden won. We didn't flip a single state house like we did in 22. Nope. 
we we didn't flip one. There really, in some cases, we lost ground. So the the run everywhere mentality. And here's the good news: another part of victory, and and I think it's for a lot of reasons, you know. But I'm happy to have been somewhat part of it. We saw, we are seeing in at least states that have come in so far a dramatic decline in the number of uncontested races. North Carolina had like 32 years ago uncontested races. A, a really phenomenal young chair in her mid-20s from rural North Carolina recruited. She's so been intensely. on the show a couple times. Yeah. She's terrific. They have two, yeah, they have two uncontested races from 30. <laughs> uh, Texas is down in uncontested races. We're running in more. Arkansas, um, Ohio, uh, Arizona, I think, is going to be a very good story. I think they're down to just a couple uncontested. That's dramatic dramatic improvement versus two years ago. And again, they're not going to win in most of these really tough districts, but we are so much better running in them and holding extremists accountable. You know, we, you and I probably told us Mike Johnson's the perfect example. The guy never had a contested race in his life. And now he's speaker. <laughs> no wonder he's so time, out man. of touch. Yeah. So, so the other reason you know, we have going, it's a whole generation sorry. of these people that we yep. have to, we have to start running yep. against them to hold them accountable, to lift turnout and to start to bend the message back to normal versus the nonstop extremism in all these districts. Yep. Yep. The, the, the other thing I think that comes that comes clear in, in your discussion of how how um, n- non-competitive uh, politics leads to bad outcomes. Um, it also is the other thing we have going for us. And this goes to, you know what, the, the, if they don't care, if they're winner take all and they're just in their own bubble, then then, yeah, they're going to make mistakes that hurt people. They're going to close schools in rural America. They're, God knows, going to make life impossible for women in a bunch of states. They're going to they're, they're going to. Um, they're going to they're going to do things in reality that have not you know that nobody has to think about politics nobody has to be abstract and consider American democracy they're just going to look at their lives and go these guys are crazy yeah and it, it you know we've seen we've seen the the indications of this with you know Kansas voting to overturn their abortion ban. Uh, right. what happened in Ohio I mean they've already kind of started to look it's starting to become clear. Wow, these guys really are out of touch. Now, we need to be in the districts to make them individually accountable, and not just reverse what they do statewide. But that's right. we we had all over Ohio uh, districts that are gerrymandered, where the people in the district voted, for example, to protect a woman's right to choose, uh, and so it, let alone not being for no exceptions for rape or incest. So, yeah, they're way, way over their skis and extremism. And I don't think most of them actually still understand that. They they are only showing up. They only were at the primaries, only showing up to their party events. And they, I don't think the smart, I, mean, I think the smart ones realize it. That's why they work so on gerrymander. But the people in these districts, many of them, think that they're representing their people and, and they're not. And I do think that that long term does open up real opportunity. Yeah. Hey, I got a chance this week to spend some time with Greg Landsman. Oh, did you? Well, no way. Yep. He, he uh, was like the it, best it, man at my wedding and my, my, me at his. So we go way back. Oh, really? He, uh, he oh, told yeah. me that you guys were friends. But just yeah. so the people who are listening know, he's a, a congressman from Cincinnati. How funny. Yeah. Yeah, and and yeah, he's a great guy. I was just texting with him ten minutes ago. He's doing a great job. He's a great, great. He's doing a great job. And you know what he told me was, um, just in terms of how the country thinks about Democrats, we are an enormously big tent, 
And the message that is pushed by Republicans, but also sometimes by us, is that we are a far more that that our left edge is is where all our energy is. And I, I don't see it that way. I mean, those of us in the middle who are starting to win back the Great Lakes don't quite see it that way. And I think that's that's an important part of our story. Yeah, I mean, here what 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 the Republicans want to to create is an impression that somehow our party is the one that's out of touch. And the truth is, when you actually look closely on almost every issue, we're the mainstream. Uh, Greg Lansman's the mainstream. Joe Biden's the mainstream on on yep. everything from public schools and unions and Social Security and all of it. Uh, climate change, guns, you name it. And I think the right does it the, like they work very hard, and it's so successful sometimes. They grab a couple people, and they'll they'll want to look like you know somehow we are the ones out of step. But they do that because actually this the reason they gerrymander, the reason they try to move our threshold to sixty percent in Ohio for last August is because they actually are very well aware that they're the ones pushing policies that no one wants. Um, that's why we've had such a good run post ops. Um, yep. They try and change the subject when things come up like Social Security. Or Dobbs, because they know it's a loser for them. So yeah, they're, they're they're think about their job every day. Once you realize that they know that their viewpoints are minority viewpoints, they have to figure out, geez, how do we win when almost everything we want to do is really unpopular? Like that's that's their daily mission. Our mission is how do we communicate the things that we believe that are mainstream views well enough to win, which means we try and message well. Theirs is how do we actually win over. A majority when that majority disagrees with almost everything we stand for, and the re and that mindset is why they're suppressing the vote, why they gerrymander, why Fox News is nothing but disinformation, and why they try and you know why they spend so much time trying to distort what Democrats actually stand for, because in the end you know or and why they you know, last year from Mike DeWine in Ohio uh, to others scrubbed every website they could of any reference to abortion because they know that their views are unpopular. Um, So, yeah, I think that that's that they, but they're, they're frankly, because they have to do this, they're pretty good at it often. Um, And we just have to be very smart on our end to make sure people see on almost every issue in the end, we actually are the, we represent the mainstream majority, sometimes super majority, and they represent often 40% or fewer of Americans on most of their core views. Right. And that's 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 in the states and in, in, in D.C. where they've just gone mad, where they've taken an issue like the border, where they were actually getting some traction and threw it in the garbage can for no reason yeah. whatsoever as a political you know, malpractice. Um, but I guess that's, you know, that's who they are. Well, I mean, the reason they do that is because in the end, you know, they're again, going back because they know they're in the minority on their views, they have to have their people show up in much bigger numbers than ours. And the way you do that is you really make them mad. You enrage and engage them, as one expert told me. And if Joe Biden and they together solve the border problem through this bill that, that they now don't want, they the the thing that they can use in the fall to get their voters to show up mad disappears. So this is, again, part – they know that they if they're going to win, they need to scare the hell out of people to have them show up, uh, which is, by the way, this worked for them in 18. You remember the there was a caravan coming to our southern border for yeah, months. Yeah. 
And it did work. It didn't work in suburbia, but it did work in red parts of states like Ohio and Florida and Georgia, where, you know, Kemp was tied or behind Stacey Abrams. DeSantis was tied or behind. Our candidate for governor was ahead in Ohio. Well, in red parts of states, uh, McCaskill was somewhat close and Donnelly was somewhat close in Missouri, Indiana. That caravan was so effective at turning out their votes that the, that the results of those states I just mentioned ended up being way off from the polling because yeah. they got their voters out by scaring them. So there's a, there, the reason Trump is saying don't do this deal is they all know that they need a reason to scare – they need to scare people to show up. And if there's a solution to this problem they're scared people about, then they've taken that off the table. Uh, again, yeah. they know they're in the minority. They have to come up with, with ways to win knowing they're in the minority. Scaring their base is a key way to do that. And that's why, in the end, it's not only about Joe Biden getting credit, which you don't want. It's about solving the problem. If they right, which they don't want to do. Goes, right. Yeah. If they solve it, there goes one of their great turnout the vote mechanisms. So that I mean, when, when you put it that way, that means they see their job as going to Washington and making the country worse, as opposed to going there and trying to make it better. Because if it's bad, there's something to complain about. Wow. Yes. And, and that's why I said, that's why I said it early. <laughs> they, they are winning their game. When nothing happens in Washington and they yep. do all the stuff they do in states, their agenda is being put forward in states and no one's really paying attention and they're stopping anything from happening in Washington and then they can use that to get elected. So, yeah, they're their perfect scenario outside of winning over Washington, which would be even worse. But but even think about it. When Trump was president, what did they do? Nothing, nothing but the tax cuts. They had two years of government. They had every single branch. No infrastructure, no, you know, the caravan they scared everyone about was when they were in charge of everything, right? Yeah. Who was a Democrat? Well, I, I, so, I want to give Trump credit for, um, um, even though, you know, he then later worked against it, but speeding up the COVID vaccination and maybe the Abraham Accords, I think are the only two, the only two that I can credit uh, accomplishments right. of his term. It's a big and they picture of like the disaster. Right. But in a two in two years, I agree on the COVID thing, although he obviously tries to take it back. But but uh, at least on the on the um, on the uh, vaccine vaccines, but on the on the legislative agenda for two years, they didn't do anything except the tax cuts, which barely happened. So the point is, judges, they're judges, judges. but their status quo, the status quo pattern of 30 years that nothing in Washington, they stop it all with the filibuster. And that's what I that's what I said in this thing I wrote the other day. If if you are frustrated by the pattern that nothing in Washington, right wing agenda, full board states, think, are you is your political activity that you are doing disrupting that pattern? And if it's not, think about how to change what you're doing, because yeah, if all smart, you're doing baby. is winning the White House and winning the Senate, which we have to do, we're still not disrupting that pattern. Until we yep. get to 60 votes, unless Democrats figure it out and stop letting the filibusters stop them. But if you are not working, if you are not working in a way that not only keeps us where we are, but advances it so that they aren't doing the pattern that I just described, then we're just treading water at best. And, 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 and you know, I've, I'm not even that old yet, but 
my whole life, the pattern I just described is what we've had. Uh, uh, eight years of Reagan, eight years of uh, four years of Bush, Clinton, like overall, not a lot happening except for a couple of years in the beginning of eight year type terms. But the right wing in the, back in these states going like crazy, pushing everything that's undermining democracy and core values. We've got to stop the cycle. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I give Nancy Pelosi a lot of credit and Joe for what they did in their first two years. Um, and the, but the the only thing that, that the, the federal government uh, does on the democracy stuff is dangerous because it's the federal judiciary that they know this. I think we've talked about this before. The states are the sword and the judiciary right. is their shield to protect them from exactly. what they do. Yeah, yeah, really bad. Hey, and David, the, I think and we, the other thing that disrupts the pattern is when we win the majority, we pass the Voting Rights Act. We end gerrymandering. When we fail to do that, we fail to interrupt their pattern. And they, they fight harder to stop Jerry, to stop Voting Rights Act than anything else because they know that would disrupt what they're doing in states. So the next time we have yeah. federal power, job one has to be to, to absolutely protect voting rights back in states and end gerrymandering back in states. That's when we're moving the ball forward. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. We need a democracy agenda, and we need to make it a priority. Um, and I hope that Joe Joe campaigns on that and talks about that. Uh, Absolutely. I think it's really important for the country. All right, as usual, um, uh, the time goes fast. Thank you, David, uh, as always. It's a great to catch up. And say hello yeah, to Greg for me. Will do. Take right. care. You take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Okay, bye. All right, everybody, we're going to take a quick break and uh, and your calls for the rest of the half hour. Edwin Eisentrath is taking your calls now at 773-763-9278. The big picture is on now. WCPT 820. Okay, everybody, so much to talk about. Let's get right to it. Dave. Hey, Edwin. Hey. Yeah, I'm not, I mentioned to the screener about um, those uh, soldiers that got killed and injured in Jordan. Well, I was reading the story where the Army still wins combat awards for those soldiers hit by that deadly drone attack in Jordan base. And, and is, yeah. it's unclear whether the soldiers killed and injured in that drone attack by the Iran-backed Iran militia in Jordan will be awarded combat accolades. And um, they're still, like I say, mulling whether they're going to the reservists killed and the, at least 40 Army National Guardmen are eligible for combat badges and Purple Hearts. Well, let's turn the clock back to the 2009 when victims and survivors of the Fort Hood attack. Mm-hmm. They got the Purple Hearts, but they had a, about a five-year struggle over whether the awards were deserved and the survivors fought the military to recognize that the shooting by, you know, Army Major, U.S. Army Major Nadal Hassan as a terrorist attack, which would make them eligible for the Purple Heart and other combat-related benefits. But the DOD likened the attack to workplace violence. Personally, I always considered that to be a case of fratricide killed by one of your own, you know, so that, um, and they, when they fought, they had um, advocates for the victims gained support from members of Congress who successfully succeeded in including legislation in the 2015 National Defense Authorization Act that broadened the definition of an attack by a foreign terrorist organization. 
Yeah, now the army mulling for those three who got killed and the 40 who got wounded and injured on Jordanian soil and not on American soil like those in Fort Hood. This shouldn't even be up for a, a debate. Yeah, okay, I, I hear you. I don't, uh, I, I think... I think they'll do the right thing. I do think the military has its process, which takes time. Always, they do take their time. So I, yeah, I, well, I'm not I, reading I know into it. Very it well. Yeah, but uh, like I, I say, they changed it. They changed the rules in the game back in 2015. So I don't yeah. even understand why they're even talking about uh, if they deserve it. You know. Well, I, I, it's hard to know. I mean, I, I just think they're saying it's too early. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. I, I'm not worried they won't do the right thing. I'm worried. Yeah. I'm not worried about this one. I, I just think they, they're yeah. they're stuck like in their process. When, when they get that Purple Heart and stuff like that, they put them for other benefits and stuff like that. That's why those Fort Hood people yep. fought so hard for it. Yep, yep. And, and yep. these three that got killed, and all, they deserve the same thing. You know, that's all I'm looking at. And, I, did, well, I, I was just kind of shocked when I seen that they were, you know, still thinking about it. That there should be no thinking involved. But anyway, I know you got other callers waiting. So thank, thank you for Dave. taking the call, Edwards. And you, you, you bet. Hey, uh, Ron, you're next. Yes, uh, the uh, city just put out the uh, crime statistics for January, and uh, every. Categories is down dramatically. Uh, homicides, robberies, you know, car thefts. Uh, am I supposed to believe all this? Ron? Ron? Yes. yes. You're talking about Chicago? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. And the crime stats are down. A lot of crime stats uh-huh. are down. Yeah, yeah, dramatically, by more than 25%. Uh-huh. Uh, the, you know, and they're down around the country. I mean, Chicago, uh, it, it, Chicago is... Uh, benefiting as, as every city suffered during COVID from a huge spike in crime. Um, Post COVID across America, those numbers are coming down. They're still higher than they were pre-pandemic, but they are all coming down, and that's a great thing. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. Okay. Um. Uh. I think I have another Ron. Yes. Hello, Edwin. Hello. 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 Yes, I hear you loud and clear. You're on the radio. Okay. You know, here in Michigan, all over the country, the Arab vote, which did back Joe Biden last election, I think it's in grave jeopardy because uh, I don't care what the policy is uh, in the Middle East. If it's not um, pro-Palestinian, it's not going to be backed by uh, American Muslims, and it's um, it's already crossed the state house in Michigan because Arabs have backed away, and they've said that they're going to uh, stay out of the election or, or back President uh, Trump, former President Trump. And uh, I just uh, I see it as disloyalty, plain and simple, to the American. Uh, you know, our policy. <laughs> I can't say it's right completely, but uh, we are defending. Uh, if you want, if you want oil to flow, if you want goods to flow, you know it's going to cost American protection because uh, 
You know, and and here's the other thing, Edwin. You know, we cannot fulfill our military obligation. The Navy has lowered its standards to the, to the point now that you do not need a GED to be become a, a sailor. And we need bodies, all right? And the patriotism of this country, it's lacking, plain and simple. Okay, well, you've, you've, raised three, you've raised three different issues. One, mm-hmm. what's the right thing to do uh, as president uh, with the crisis in the Middle East? Two, what's the impact on, on politics, particularly amongst uh, uh, Arab American voters? And three, um, how do we... Uh, is the country supportive of enough of our our role in the world? And I want to say on, on all of those, I am not as worried as you are. Um, uh, our armed forces are um, remarkably skilled and talented, and yet no question um, recruiting an all-volunteer army at the size that we are recruiting is a huge challenge. And it's always a challenge when the economy does better because people have all mm-hmm. kinds of other options, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yes. no, there's no, I, I would rather a young person who's thinking about going in the army um, uh, make that decision with choices. Yeah, but I could also get this job, right? That, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, and it's up to the army to learn how to train and to support. Um, and, and we, by and large, we have the most professional um, and skilled army in the world. And I, I'm not worried about that. That's your last point. Um, I, I think we have to campaign for every voter. Um, I don't think it's disloyal to the United States for Arab American voters to uh, have um, uh deep concerns about what's going on in Gaza. Um, and I think um, Joe Biden has, I, I think he's doing the right thing. I, I, I think the claims of genocide, Joe, are uncalled for in every way. Um, uh, I think it's an enormously emotionally painful topic. The, the, the numbers of deaths, they're just appalling, right? And it doesn't matter what the cause was. The cause, I mean, What happened on October 7th in Israel was absolutely appalling. What's going on over there is is the country is seeing because the whole world pays attention. You know, we don't pay attention when the war is in other parts of the world as we do when the war is there. And the world is seeing how awful it is. And by the way, it's awful in Ukraine, too. And there have been more deaths there. Um, uh, But. But I don't blame people for being truly angry and upset and wanting a solution. And Biden's um, focus on not just the immediate problem, but the long term um, dignity and sovereignty of the Palestinian people and the security uh, of Israel in the region is, I think, um, the best that we can hope for for a position uh, in the United States. And I don't mean best we can hope for like the bar is low. I mean, that's a high bar. And I think they're meeting it. Um, um, but it's up to the campaign to work for the votes. And I think you will see um, the Biden uh, campaign spend a lot of time in Michigan and a lot of time talking about not just what's going on internationally, but what he's done to make people's lives better. And and uh, Arab voters are like um, Jewish voters and Italian voters and black voters and uh and evangelical voters, all of them, you know, have, have they live in a world and the world's either getting better or worse because of the decisions that are made by political leaders. I think Joe's got a great story to tell 
And I think in the end, and it, the election is, you know, is still the better part of a year away. Um, he has plenty of time to get that message out. My thoughts. I, you, you, you're very welcome. Uh, but all good points. All very good points. Hey, Edward. Yes. One, one final point, if I may. You know, this is Black History Month, but. Um, a contribution in a Chicago tie to it. Uh, it was John Brown and uh, Alan Pinkerton. At that time, Alan Pinkerton was uh, the top uh, railroad cop in the United States and Canada. He uh, and John, him and John Brown were collaborators in the Underground Railroad. I don't think many people knew about that. But uh, John Brown came to uh, uh, Pinkerton when he was living in Chicago on Adams Street with a group of uh, uh, recently freed uh, uh, people. <laughs> and it was uh, like two, uh, in the middle of the uh, night, and Alan Pinkerton wel- welcomed him in and uh, went to an abolitionist meeting to collect money for him to continue their uh, mission of freeing the uh, enslaved people. But, uh, you know, it, the Underground Railroad was not only underground, it was surface ground, but uh, we don't know a lot about it still. So uh, just uh, something to throw out there. Well, I, honestly, I don't know that story, and I'm going to go look it up when I get off the radio today, because that's here's, pretty interesting. Here's the book, here's the book to get, uh, Hour of Peril, where Abraham Lincoln is passing through Baltimore to become president, and Alan Pinkerton has to devise a, a secret plan to get him through uh, the Baltimore, which is uh, ready to... Uh, Lynch him. Revolt. Yeah, I know so, he was uh, disguised when he had to slip in. Yeah, he just, he just wore he just wore a cape. He did not get dressed up like a woman, like uh, no. Jefferson Davis did. Yeah, but there's nothing yeah. wrong with cross cross dressing, right? <laughs> yeah. he, Times were different. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thank you, Ron. Thank Very you. interesting. Really appreciate it. Bye bye, um, Eduardo. Yeah. You're next. Yeah, Edwin, thank you for taking my call. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to see this or want to comment on this. The Bureau of Prisons, they did an interview uh, last week about um, staffing problems and also sexual abuses by prison guards. So I'm hoping that uh, Mr. Garland, the Department of Justice, is going to be looking into that, maybe kind of deepen that up. What do you think on that? I don't know the story. I did not. uh, I missed that one. I do know that, uh, here are my views. There are too many, um, they're the wrong people in jail, too many. Um, um, and people who are violent and dangerous need to be in jail, flat out. Uh, right. Most of them are young. We, but what we did in the, in the, you know, it, it, in the last 20 years is have these enormously long sentences. So people are in jail in their 70s and their 80s, right? Jails and prisons around the country are like nursing homes now with people who are geriatric. They're not, they, and, and it costs a fortune to do elder care in a penitentiary. So we are spending m- massive amounts of money we don't need to spend keeping people in prison who are not dangerous anymore, no matter what they did 30 years ago, right? And they've, you know... Um, so I, I think we ought to rethink a little bit how th- this enormous length of time we lock people up for when they are not dangerous anymore. They're just old and expensive to take care of, whereas they have a family on the outside who might do it 
you know, in a, in a, in a more efficient and frankly, much more supportive way. Um, so so the, the, the problems in our prisons are, are legion. We, we don't like to, as a society to think about our prisons, right? So they, from time to time, forever, there are places of abuse and there are places of, um, uh, um, that, you know, we run investigations on. And if, if there's a new scandal in a police, in a prison, it's not, unfortunately, a surprise. It'd be better off doing trade schools for them. That'd be more. Those are the young ones. Those are the young ones. And for, and for some, their alternatives make sense, right? But when you have an offender out there who, you know, picks up a gun and commits a crime in my city, you know what? They need to be, um, they, they need to appropriately be removed from the general population until they're n- no longer dangerous. Now, I know there are questions of, of the court system and equal justice to the courts, all of that. We, but we passed, we passed the Safety Act in Illinois in part to address a lot of these, including some of the appalling abuses um, in bond court and all of that stuff. Um, we have to see it through. Um, and, and, you know, these reforms will only continue to have support so long as uh, violence comes down. And then they'll have support. But if violent crime goes back up, the public is going to demand once again that we lock people up forever. And um, and that's not that's just not good for anybody. Not good for taxpayers. Doesn't make us safer. Not good for us. Families. So um, I'm glad you're paying attention to this. You know, we don't I don't talk about this on this show very much, um, but criminal justice is an enormously um, uh important part of American society and one that deserves more attention than I've given it. So I appreciate your bringing it up. Thank you, Edwin. You bet. All right, everybody. Um, What do I want to talk about in the few minutes I have left? I think I want to talk about this. We have every reason to be optimistic this year. And you heard it for the last, you know, three hours here on this show they are running a madman. They're running on an unpopular agenda. They um, have formed a very tight core of people who are radicalized and will, you know, do anything to win. But at the same time, that is so repulsive to most Americans that uh, uh, standing not in that radical uh, not are uh, the, the rest of us. The normal Americans want to get on with our lives, want the world to get better, not worse, not radicalized. Although, you know, we, we vary in our points of view from the progressive edge to the center. We, we have very different views and we'll fight about our differences. No question, but we'll fight about them using proper democratic means. Um, uh, but, you know, we, right now, there's uni, un, unanimity, almost. And I want to say this, and I've said it before, but I need to say it out loud as we enter this election year. America is not more divided than it has ever been. That is a fib. In fact, um, think about our history. Were we really less divided when black Americans weren't allowed to vote in presidential elections? Were we less divided when half of the jobs in the country weren't open to women? 
Were we less divided a hundred years ago when if you organized uh, to try and form a union, you know, they in Chicago, you, you, they turn left in the middle of the river on a bridge and you got shot. No, we were we were we were more divided. What's happening now is a coming together. And there are people who do not want that. It was going to be too hard. Right. That's what's happening. Multiracial, multi-faith coming together. And that and, and, and on issues, there are people who care a lot about abortion rights. There are people who care a lot about voting rights. There are people who care a lot about uh, the environment. And, and, and I could go on. It's a long, a long, 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 long list, reading books, whatever it is. And a lot of people say my issue is the most important. Why are you paying attention to my issue? I get that. But right now, we're all saying, you know what? All of these issues share a common, um, a, a common path towards improvement. And so these broad coalitions are forming in American politics in a way they haven't in 50, 60, 80, I don't know how many years, probably since the 1930s, really, these broad coalitions. And those were sort of labor kinds of coalitions. They weren't multiracial ones. Here we have something we really haven't seen in a long time. I am confident that Americans coming together and by the way, not just Democrats, but Democrats and a whole lot of people who don't want to be part of a political party, who just think the whole idea of political parties is kind of gross and don't want to be part of it. But they care about these one of these issues or two of these issues or four of them. They, they, they're, they're on ramps for us all to get involved. And as you heard from David Pepper, the other guys, they, they can't do this because they're stuck in a loop of of unpopular ideas that lead to bad outcomes that lead to they have to cheat the system to stay in power. And Americans aren't going to put up with that. We have to have the energy to show up. We have to have the energy to show up. But all of this is reason for optimism as we go into this crazy year. Um, and it's going to be a year of disinformation. And it's going to be a year where we have um, in addition to having to do the political work, we have to do the governmental work. And here we're up against um, deep entrenched forces in states that are doing grave damage to Americans. I think about what Ron DeSantis has done to Florida. It's just heartbreaking for the people who live there. Governor Abbott in Texas, please. Um, but you have counterexamples. And I hear the Great Lakes are showing that we can make America better and do things that really make people's lives better. And it's a long fight, but we're doing it. And in D.C., you know, the, the thank goodness for those first two Biden years, those policies um, that were passed when Nancy Pelosi was in charge of Congress, we, of the House, we're beginning to uh, see them in the country and people's lives are getting better and the Biden administration is implementing them well. Then there's America's place in the world. And the world is a complicated and dangerous um, but also filled with opportunity place. And I, I think um, there's always going to be uh, heartbreak and there's always going to be anger about the, the incredible cruelty in the world. And what should America do? What's our role? Um, I just want you to think whether you like what Joe Biden is doing or you're concerned about what he's doing. The other guy's answer is to try drop a nuclear bomb on our on Tehran. Right. Or or um, say to people who are fleeing. Uh, I mean, can you imagine family from Gaza 
were managed to you know get out the answer from the trump administration was you can't get in a plane no no we're not having any muslims allowed in the country forget that so i you know again whether it's domestic or foreign there's a lot of work to do i am grateful for the fight we're in politically and governmentally anyway guys uh, you made my day today i'll see you next week take care